Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. We are continuing our Batman on Film series. This is part seven where we are looking at the 2000 direct-to-video animated feature Batman Beyond Return of the Joker. Um, mostly we are looking at theatrical Batman movies. We're obviously not going to do every direct-to-video Batman movie or else we would be here forever yes uh but there were a cut there are two in specific we're doing we're doing this and we are doing uh under the red hood when we get there which there's a pretty clear connection between those two movies Mm -hmm. um but sean remind us why we wanted to talk about this one in specific yeah the two major reasons i think the the biggest one being it's just really fucking good um and i kind of wanted to watch it again because it's good and wanted to talk about it um and the other one being that you hadn't seen it and so yes. this is my way of being like, hey, Jonathan, you should watch some Batman Beyond <laughs> and watch this movie, and then we should talk about it, because it's really good. And if you like Batman the Animated Series, this movie in particular is uh, required viewing, in my opinion. Yes, it's a direct sequel to that. It has pretty clear ties to some of the stuff we talked about with Mask of the Phantasm. Yeah. So it feels like it would be sort of incomplete if we didn't talk about this one, because its legacy looms rather large. So... Very happy I've finally seen it. It is a very good movie. It's one of the better Batman movies we will be talking about. Yep. Yep. So that'll be our main topic today. But we also have quite a bit of news. We have a little bit of stuff. Uh, E3 is not happening this year, but like stuff that... It, it kind of... There's some sort of digital E3 something. It's not, you know, they're not yeah. throwing everybody into a room in Los Angeles and saying, let's show some video games. But but they decided the E3 media corporation were like, hey, well, let's do something under this branding rather than just having Jeff Keighley do it for us. Yeah. Which is what they did last year. So stuff will be happening kind of on and off and, you know, giving you, remind people you're moving to Texas. Yeah. So next week's episode is going to be pre-recorded. And then when is E3 actually? It's I like, think it would be the week after that. Okay. So we'll see. Okay. Yeah, we'll so, see. So we'll see how much of it we actually get to cover. We'll also see how much of it happens. there actually is. Yeah. So, so this is preamble to say there was some pre-E3 stuff this week. There was a Dragon Quest live stream. There was a Sonic live stream. There was a Sony live stream about Horizon and a, a investor call that had some pretty clear like E3-timed mm-hmm. stuff to talk about. So we're going to talk about all of that, a little bit of news. Uh, next week's episode, like I said, will be pre-recorded. It'll be another Batman one, so there will be no news or anything in that yeah. one unless we just make it up. We could. We could we just could. pretend and say, yeah. you know, oh, Sony decided to can the PS5 and make the Switch 2. The Sony <laughs> Switch 2. It's, but it's the Switch T-O-O. Yeah, exactly. It's not their second Switch. It's the Switch also. Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, we will not lie to you, hopefully. Um, but yeah, so that'll be today's podcast. Uh, we are again recording in my parents' basement, which is a little bit echoey, but I actually thought it sounded pretty good last week. Mm-hmm. Um, if you hear a little bit of pitter-pattering, that is probably my dogs upstairs running around. Um, they have a little less supervision this week, so they're they're up doing their own thing. and They're uh, just dogging up there. Dogging. They, I mean, they will probably wind up on a couch asleep. That sounds like a good time. I yeah. wouldn't mind that. They They like it a lot. You know, so do I. Yeah, we all do. It's one of the many ways dogs and humans get along together. Mm-hmm. We both like getting on couches and falling asleep. Absolutely. So, all right, Sean, what have you been up to? I'm moving to Texas. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you've heard. That's yeah. what I've been up to. I've played um, exactly zero hours of Ration Clank since the last time. I was hoping to play more of it, and that didn't happen because okay. I'm packing stuff up and yeah, and, yeah like it was. Watching Batman Beyond and another the Batman movie we'll talk about on the next episode uh, was a nice reprieve from 
lugging boxes up and downstairs and going and buying bubble wrap and you know all yeah. the things you do when you are moving like 28 years worth of bullshit <laughs> uh, which is mostly what that house was full of was 28 years of bullshit so it feels good yeah. to get rid of it but it is it is a lot of stuff to do it is yeah so I you know I moved out of my childhood house a couple of years ago when my parents well I had already moved out but I came back to help them out mm-hmm. and um, it was you know it's a whole thing so I, uh, I understand. You, uh, I did. I have fun looking through the box of shit you gave me last week, uh-huh. which included a bunch of VHS tapes that I was not expecting, like Space Jam. You yep. had in there. You had this one. I actually was excited to see. You had the 1986 Transformers, the yes. movie, um, which is awesome. I actually, it's funny when you gave me that. I already, I had like it arrived in the mail like the next day. The Blu-ray of that, which I was getting because I'm going to show it in my giant robots class this fall. And but now, now you have the legit yeah. artifact that you can show instead of I mean, Blu-ray. We do, I believe, have a VHS in that screening room. There you go. And part of me is like, the authentic way to do this would be to just put the tape on. Yes. Yeah. But uh, we'll see. The, the Blu-ray is like fucking gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I, they just, I have that Blu-ray. And yeah. I'm like, well, I definitely don't need to keep this VHS yeah. anymore. And uh, it's funny, like the day my Blu-ray, like I ordered it, they also announced that that movie's coming out on 4K Blu-ray. So that movie has is getting all the versions. Yeah. But really, you know, you, you want the tape. You want it exactly. to be authentic. But anyway, um, yeah, so I have played some stuff. Cool. I finished Resident Evil Zero. That game does get worse as it goes along. I was pretty positive on it last time. I still like, I like it, and I would recommend it to anyone who enjoys particularly OG, like the first Resident Evil or the GameCube remake, because it's most similar to that, although it definitely, as you go, it's got more sort of Resident Evil 2, 3, um, sort of like a little more linear exploration kind of stuff. Um, And I do like the partner stuff. The problem is that it's, one, it's way too long. Mm -hmm. Like my Steam clock on that game was 16 hours. Which is way too long for that kind of Resident Evil. Um, and it just kind of... It, it, there, there were like... I think I finished it on Thursday night. And every night, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, when I sat down, I thought I was going to finish it. And it was just like, nope, not yet, mm-hmm. not yet, not yet. Uh, and then it also gets ridiculously hard near the end with some bosses and like combat encounters that are... I don't know how to describe it other than mean. Like it is mean to the player in a way that... Resident Evil is like sly and funny and scary and stuff but I don't usually think of it as like a mean series mm-hmm. um, and it's it's just mean like there's this one boss fight you have to do with like basically a tyrant that it drops Rebecca into this like this tiny little arena where you have to figure out the exact sort of pattern to run to like avoid its giant fucking claw and it's just it's bad there's a lot of combat encounters where if you don't take in the right like ammo and stuff you just you can't beat it right. and like there were cases also where like Thank God I do the thing where I cycle my saves. Because if I wasn't doing that, there are places where you, I think, legitimately could be blocked from finishing the game. Mm-hmm. And you would have to, like, start over. And that, that sucks. Yes, that is that is the thing that video games don't do anymore. No, but uh, luckily I was cycling my saves. It finally, like, near the end, the final, like, two-part boss fight is... So it's, one, it's hard, but also you have to take in both Billy and Rebecca. And a lot of boss fights, you just leave one of them behind because you don't want to babysit the other one because you, you can only play one at a time. Mm-hmm. But the last boss fight, you have to have both. And basically how it worked every time is I would try to figure out, like, get into the right place to start shooting the boss. And by the time I got two shots off, I had lost because the other person had gotten killed. And there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. And I tried a million things. Some people online were recommending, well, just strip them of all equipment and then they'll just run around. And kind of, but then they do eventually get killed too. So it's like... It just, 
finally what I did is I'm like, you know what? I'm playing this on PC. Uh-huh. I'm playing this on PC. I'm installing the mod that gives me infinite ammo and infinite health and and basically what the, the, it was great. The way whoever modded this did the like invincibility mod is just enemies can't make contact with you. Like you can walk ah. through them. And so I would just like basically I just stood in front of the enemy and I pulled out my magnum with infinite magnum ammo and just shot them until they fell. And then I got to watch the cutscene, do part two of the boss fight, finish it, and it was a very enjoyable way to finish that game. So I'm glad I'm playing on PC. It's, it is one of the benefits for sure. Yes. As you can just say, is this section of the game bullshit? Well, then I don't have to deal with it. Yeah. So Resident Evil Zero, I it's one of the lesser games overall just because of some of those issues. But I really like the exploration. I love the environments. It's got graphics that are, I think in like overall art direction, maybe not quite as strong as like the Resident Evil remake, but like up there. And like it's one of the most gorgeous games ever made. Um, I like Rebecca and Billy. There's a lot of good stuff about it, and Resident Evil fans should play it, definitely. Um, especially because on sale, that game is like $4 usually nowadays. Mm -hmm. You can pick it up. Um, but yeah, but I finished that, and then I jumped right into Resident Evil 1, uh, which I have played before, but the, the, the GameCube remake specifically that we have in HD everywhere now. Because um, I just wanted to play it again. I've never played the Chris route. I only played the Jill route. And um, I enjoyed that game when I played it for the first time a year or two ago. I'm enjoying it so much more this time for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. I think maybe just part of it is that I'm doing it all with the original tank controls, which I like mastered over the course of Zero. Yeah. And that alone just like, oh yeah, that's how this game is meant to be played. Uh -huh. That's just, it's a huge unlock about that game. Um, it's just, because I like, I have played it before and I have some knowledge, I don't have to like look at a guide for any, I like, uh, uh, even when I don't remember things, I'm better at like knowing kind of how to explore. Uh-huh. That is one of the best games ever made, Sean. Yep. It absolutely genuinely like I don't it might be becoming my favorite Resident Evil. But even if it isn't, like there's the critic in me I think that's one of like the 10 or 20 best games ever made. It is just so ludicrously well done. Mm -hmm. It it has that same quality as like Mist or something where it just drops you off and then you have to go figure it out. And it's very, very good at that. That kind of thing that is, like, I feel like a pretty much a lost art now. Uh -huh. Maybe Dark Souls does it a little bit, but, like... Yeah, it's, yeah, Dark Souls is definitely the closest thing to that. But so many games nowadays, like, they're designed to make them very completable, other than yeah. if they're super long. Like, that's the only thing that right. keeps you from finishing a game. Whereas, yeah, back in the day, you would have games that don't give you that, like, heavy level of tutorialization that we're so, like, used to with most, yeah. certainly, AAA games these days. Yeah, and, and that's the fun, because I love that kind of exploration, yeah. you know, Metroid. I, I, Metroidvania really should have Resident Evil in there somewhere. Metroid. I, no, we don't need that, that genre title to get any worse than it already is. What it would really be if we wanted to do the history lesson is Sweet Home, which came out before Castlevania yes. Symphony of the Night and is the predecessor of Resident Evil and helped like solidify the Metroid style. So it really should we call should call them Metroid Sweet Homevanias. What if we just called them like exploration-focused platforming games? Sure. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's fine. There you go. Uh, Resident Evil's very good anyway. Uh, I love that. And and that's a game I'm going to be screening in my Intro to Film Theory class because I want to do a week on what I call media. Well, not I. A lot of people call media convergence and the way TV, games, and films have all kind of merged a lot of the same kind of art and skill sets. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is just the, the best example of that ever in a game because it's, on one hand, it's incredibly gamic in a lot of ways. Yes. 
Yeah, but you is, are running around and finding like weird shaped keys to put into yeah. weird shaped doors. But yeah. it's it's a gimmick in that way. It's gimmick in combat, but also like in earlier forms of games that we don't have anymore, like text based stuff. Uh-huh. There's a lot of that in there too. Yeah. Um, but it is also, I think, as cinematic as a game can possibly be with these like very precise filmic compositions that deal with lighting and mise-en-scene and depth and all this stuff um, and that it actually it cuts and it decides when it cuts you don't decide when I guess you do in your movement but like the game is doing the cutting on the fly in like a continuity editing style it's it's this fascinating blend of again the, the convergence which is to say but not I it's not like a game that it just looks like cinema I don't care about that I don't care about like game like like the Last of Us or something people like to write about cinematic and like but what they usually mean is just it's got a lot of cutscenes yeah I don't that doesn't matter I, I'm not saying dismissing cutscenes good or bad that's not my point my point is from a theoretical standpoint it's not interesting yeah it's this kind of stuff like it meshed in the gameplay that I find so interesting and that there's not a ton of anymore so yeah yeah you could also now that Jonathan you have um, all God of Wars one through three on the PS3 because I gave you my copies yes. you can play those also because those also have fixed. Cameras. I mean, they are sweeping cameras, but you don't control the camera in that game. It's yeah. like one of the other few examples that's all, that's not like a survival horror game that does that. Yeah, I guess Devil May Cry a little bit. Yeah, Devil May um, Cry 1. Yeah. And yeah, like 1 through 3 all have fixed camera mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. All right. Um, now you're hearing a pipe because we're downstairs. Yes. Yeah. Oh, this well. Is the, the basement podcast experience. Yeah, there you go. The basement, the weekly basement podcast. Exactly. With, yes. With yeah, um, with the pitter patter of dogs and in water flowing through pipes. Yes. But anyway, Resident Evil is great. I also figured out how to install two and three on PC in really good versions, um, and I was really excited to figure all of that out because basically those had really good PC ports in the mid two thousands in Japan only. Mm-hmm. But you can still install them on Windows, and then there are fan patches that bring them up to like full compatibility with Windows ten. They put in all the English stuff, voices and text. Uh, it's the source next stuff. I'm sure if you're a Resident Evil fan, you already know about it. But if you're like put off by like that seems hard, it was actually really easy to figure it all out. So I am excited to go into those two at some point because I've never played. I've only played the remakes, and I do kind of want to see how the originals work with right. all of that stuff. So I played a little bit of Resident Evil Two, and it is fun just going around that opening area and comparing in my mind like oh, what they did with the remake. It gives me like even more respect for the remake and for the original game. Mm-hmm. It's very cool. So anyway, uh, I am still on my Resident Evil kick. That's that's my it's story. a it's a fucking great franchise. Resident Evil is very very good, very fucking good. Love it. Uh, I also I was on Amazon Prime the other night looking for something, and they have all of the Resident Evil movies. You don't do this. I no, I didn't start watching them. Okay, I watched I I like skipped through about thirty minutes of the first movie, uh-huh. like with like the the little tool to like go like ten seconds forward, trying to see like is there anything in here that I recognize from this video game series I love. I couldn't find anything. No, no. the 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 only thing you you've probably seen it, or if you haven't, you can just look it up on YouTube. There's like the laser grid scene in the first movie. That's cool. Okay. Um. That's that's a cool effect. Or it was in like 2000 or whatever. I know that in one of the, I don't know which one it is, but in one of the later movies, they basically like reshoot. Um, one of the the cutscene from Resident Evil Five where Chris fights Wesker, or it's like one of the scenes where he fights Wesker, and they just do it in live action, and it's terrible. Yeah, and that's the other thing. If you end up getting that far, I think it's like movie four or five or something like that. I'm not again. I'm not watching the movie. You're going to I, watch? No, you've you've already said this sentence. It's like, oh, Amazon has all of them, and then you looked at it. I don't want to. I don't want to watch these movies. This is going to happen eventually, but you will get to that, and you'll be like, oh, I kind of recognize that cutscene. It's just fascinating because I do know they use some character names here and there, but like, 
how did they make six... Like, I feel like the fan base is also completely separate. I uh-huh. never hear anyone into the games who's into the movies. And I never... And there are people into the movies, but they're never into the games. I never see yeah, crossover. Yeah, I mean, they're effectively different franchises yeah. completely. I mean, the main character, Alice, in those movies is not right. connected to the games at all. Did you know there's a new one coming out? Yes. Yeah. That is supposedly based on the first game, or it's like Chris and Jill are the main characters. It's gonna suck. Yeah, no, they, yeah. yeah, no. It's no. it's one of the most baffling things in Hollywood is that they just kept making those movies forever. <laughs> anyway, you want to talk about some news? What's going on in the news, Jonathan? It took me a little bit to kind of figure out what the melody of that was supposed to be. It was very bad. Okay. Yeah, there we go. Dragon Quest had its 35th anniversary event announcements. This is the 35th anniversary of Dragon Quest, although nothing seems to be coming out this year, maybe. But, you know, they wanted to tell us about stuff. And it was honestly a really cool little event. They announced some pretty big stuff. Let's start with, like, the small thing they announced which was Dragon Quest Keshkeshi which is a puzzle game for mobile coming 2021 to Japan TBA worldwide it's not going to come out worldwide okay I yeah I would be shocked if this came out outside of Japan there is there's the new Dragon Quest like uh, gotcha game that's out worldwide I forget what that's called Dragon Quest it's like a little strategy game mm-hmm. that's like gotcha stuff uh, then they did some stuff about Dragon Quest 10 which is the online game that launched like 10 years ago now? Yeah, that game's pretty old at this point. Yeah, it launched on the Wii, uh-huh. Sean. And now, yeah. Um, it launched on a system that is no longer connected to the internet. <laughs> That's a good point, yes. Yeah. Obviously, they ported it uh, to yes, multiple other on. systems later. Yeah. But only in Japan, critically. Dragon Quest yes. X is the one that never came out here because it's an MMO. Yeah, if you want to play it in America, you have to do it on PC and use like a VPN and do yeah. stuff because it's like it also is like region blocked. Um, but there's a version six uh, of that is launching in 2021. What was interesting to me though is that they are making an offline version of Dragon Quest 10 as well that I presume will like have a lot of the story content and stuff. Um, it's neither of these are planned to come to the West, but that did pique my interest because. I would be totally willing to import the like Japanese copy of Dragon Quest X offline and play that to like complete my collection. Mm-hmm. That would be very cool. Yes, I mean I've only ever played these games in Japanese anyway, so yeah. that would that to me was like a, okay, awesome. I can get back on my bullshit, play some yeah. Dragon Quest, and know that I could experience some version of ten. Yes, and I am uh, getting more back into studying Japanese for my PhD and stuff. So that's like oh, maybe I'll, maybe that'll that'll be down the road. That'll be like a goal of mine mm-hmm. is to be able to play that. Uh, but the coolest announcement to me was they announced yep. a Dragon Quest III HD 2D remake in the style of Octopath Traveler and the upcoming um, Project Triangle strategy, uh, although much more colorful. It looks very mm-hmm. Dragon Quest in that sense, but it is utterly gorgeous. And I mean, if you've looked at Octopath Traveler, that's one of the most gorgeous games in recent memory. Mm-hmm. Um, this is like that, only with like big, bold Toriyama colors. <laughs> And it's of Dragon Quest III, which is one of the best games in the series. Um, they didn't give a release date or platforms. They did say it was coming to consoles. I assume it'll be on everything, because yeah. why not? Um, that is now one of my most anticipated games out there. Yeah, no, that was a really awesome announcement that, like, I don't think anyone was expecting. Um, yeah. But it is, And it's the one where, like, that's when I was playing through Dragon Quest. That was, like, the one I got, like, halfway through and then got sidetracked with other stuff. And I need to just replay it from the beginning. This is a very good way to be like, okay, I can just replay yes. it from the beginning and, and just start over because it's a full remake. Yeah, because Dragon Quest One, Two, Three, basically the way to play those now, legally and everything, is the, the iOS ports, which are also now on Switch. 
in like a normal sort of widescreen orientation. And those are good. Like they give you all the content. They've got the music. It's fine. But the visuals, they're not like the original NES or Super NES graphics. They're like sort of faux that and they don't look great to me. Um and this is like a nice way to have that. I would still love if they would get like the Super NES ports. I know you've played yeah. um, out at some point, but this is more than we could have asked for. This is fucking awesome. Yeah, yeah, it looks yeah. gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, Dragon Quest Treasures, which I initially thought was like Builders 3. It's not. It is a spinoff of Dragon Quest Eleven, focusing on the characters of Eric and Mia, or if you played the Japanese version, Kamu and Maya, mm-hmm. um, who uh, Eric is your, your main like buddy party member who is also a thief. He and his sister, uh, it's about their childhood adventures as treasure hunters. Not many details beyond being a non-traditional RPG. It'll be a worldwide release. Um, this is the first time they're committing to worldwide releases. We heard this several times. Um, Dragon Quest has never done worldwide releases. It's always been like tiered, kind of like Persona games or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but that does look fun. It looks the visual style is a lot like uh, Builders, but yeah. it looks very cool. Uh, and then the big announcement was Dragon Quest Twelve: The Flames of Fate, aiming for a worldwide release. No platform states announced. No footage shown or anything. Uh, Yuji Hori got on and talked a little bit about how they want it to be sort of a darker, more adult Dragon Quest. How it would have some player choice and story progression. They might revise the battle system, which I'm praying to every god I know does not mean action RPG bullshit. I'm pretty sure that they confirmed that it would still be some version of turn-based. Good. It's just not... Yeah. It's, they're probably going to like experiment with it. Yeah, yeah. which is fine. Um, but Dragon Quest, you know, the, 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 the best thing Dragon Quest has going for it is that they've had this one system they've refined so much yeah. over time that by 11 it's like the best version of that ever made uh-huh. um and i want them to do more with that but yeah i mean that is a because pre- 11 is not that old it came out in 2017 in japan mm-hmm. um so it's a pretty recent game i mean this is probably several years off but like to get the announcement of dragon quest 12 that soon is pretty cool yes and 11 was fucking great so fucking yeah great. i'm yeah pretty pretty excited for this um you know it is it's one of those all they announced really was a logo but I'll, I'll take it just to know that they're making another Dragon Quest. It is nice that the next number to Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy, I'm very excited about both. Yes. Yeah. It's Final Fantasy 16. They've got it in exactly the right hands. Mm-hmm. This Dragon Quest is only ever in one set of hands. Um, but it's a very good set of set hands. Of hands. Yeah. I mean, Dragon Quest Eleven, I think, is another one, like fucking Resident Evil I was talking about earlier, that I just think is one of the very best games ever made. So I am more than excited for this. And yay, Dragon Quest. Dragon Quest is big, which it has always been. Dragon Quest has never like gone through a fallow period in Japan. But now it is big worldwide, which is really cool. You know, mm-hmm. It's kind of having its persona moment. And I like that. Yeah, and and it also just makes me happy to know that Ichiban Kasuga is out there somewhere in the world watching yes. watching that live stream fucking stoked. I hope that's the start of Yakuza 8. Yeah. It's him, like, playing. He's going to the store to buy Dragon Quest Twelve and, like, gets sidelined by something. If someone steals the last copy or something and that that's what sparks the whole plot of the game. <laughs> the whole plot of the game is a Yakuza territorial conflict over the last copy of Dragon Quest Twelve. Yeah, he, like, uncovers this, like, secret underground, like, video game <laughs> ring where they're, like, selling video games on the black market and all the video games are being ripped out of stores. And it's like it somehow it reaches to the highest tiers of the Japanese government that you uncover. The big um, final boss, you know, Kasuga rips off his shirt. He's got his dragon tattoo. The other guy rips off his shirt. It's a slime tattoo. Yes. <laughs> and, and it's Horiyuji, uh, yes. the creator of Dragon Quest. He's the big Oh, man. man. So, I'm sorry. that We have just written a better <laughs> version of Yakuza 8 than even, even as great as Yakuza is. They're not going to match that. Yeah. Call me up. 
you go go to Gustidia's. I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll I'll workshop this with you. All right. Sonic the Hedgehog also got a little live stream. Uh, we had a couple of announcements there. Uh, it's also a significant anniversary for Sonic this year. It's his thirtieth, right? Yep. Yeah, ninety-one. Because um, we're almost thirty. Fuck. Yep. Um, we're old men. <laughs> they announced uh, Sonic Colors Ultimate was the big like. This is coming this year. Yeah. Here's the box. Here's some footage and stuff. Uh, this is a um, sort of remaster. Re- a pretty good, like, significant remaster of Sonic Colors, which was a Wii game, which is a pretty, like, easily the most acclaimed of, like, the late-era Sonic 3D games other than Generations. Yeah, and it's the one that preceded Generations that, like, kind of cracked that version of, like, the boost mm-hmm. 3D kind of gameplay stuff they did. And, yeah, it's one that it's like feels like the big Sonic game I that I wanted to play that I have not played because yeah. I didn't play shit on my Wii. Um, and yeah, like it is, I'm very excited for that because it's something I've wanted to play for a long time. Yeah, me too. I, I have it and I have my Wii still, but I have not like, this will be easier than plugging all that in. Yeah. That'll look nicer. So I am excited and, you know, maybe it'll mean we'll get more games hopefully like this at some point. We'll see. But that is coming. That is coming in, I believe, like August or September. Uh, it is coming if you get a physical pre-order with a, this is such a weird tie-in, a Sonic the Hedgehog but the baby version from the movie Keychain. Great. Yeah. That's, uh, that's It was cute. Baby Sonic in the movie is cute, but it's like, it feels like that's a year late because that movie uh-huh. is, but you know, I mean, Sonic, the, the second Sonic movie is coming around, so who knows? They're, they're, they're tying it all together. They're doing a Sonic, um, I just wrote Sonic Old Collection. I don't it's remember. It's called Sonic Origins. Okay, yeah. Sonic Origins. Which will be so- <clears throat> the Genesis game Sonic 1, 2, 3, Knuckles, and then Sonic CD. Um, and if you're thinking, haven't they re-released those a million times? Yes, but with the giant asterisk that 3 and Knuckles have not been re-released since the 360. Yeah. Um, and those ports, which are still really good. And if you have an Xbox, you can still play all those ports and they're kind of perfect. <laughs> but um, they could look a little nicer, I guess. You yeah, I think them. the big thing is those are still 4x3 and there's a widescreen mode. With yes. All, like, Sonic 1 and 2 have been remastered in widescreen for a while. Yes. 3 and Knuckles have not yet been. They said, hey, yeah. we're doing that work to kind of bring the 3 and Knuckles like remasters or whatever like up to parity with mm-hmm. what the Sonic 1 and 2s have been for the past few years. Yeah, and then uh, the Sonic CD has not been re-released for a while either, but I assume yeah. that'll be like the Christian Whitehead port mm-hmm. basically. I assume so. So, I'm glad they're having it. I'm glad there'll be one easy collection, but man, they've, they've re-released like 1 and 2 specifically, like there have been so many in the last couple of years, and it's always like they do 1, 2, and it's like, where's 3 and Knuckles? Exactly, and, then, and, and like 3, 3 specifically, but then also Knuckles, like those are the ones that like I owned and played a lot so like it's always bummed me out that like it's not been easy on a modern console like obviously i can fucking emulate it or yeah i i have my sega genesis i know exactly where it is because it's in a box and i know exactly <laughs> where my copy of sonic the hedgehog 3 is and so i can actually just play those games that way but it's way more convenient to just have it on a playstation or something moment you get to texas that's the first thing you're yeah. going inside you're setting up uh, an old crt your Genesis uh-huh. and Sonic Three, yeah, and the 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 VCR that I've kept because I was like, I don't really want any of the VHS tapes, but I want the I want to keep the VCR just in case, so I'm gonna plug that in too. You never know, yeah, you never know. I mean, hell, you're you're a public school teacher. They you could wind up in a place where the, all they mm-hmm. have is VCR. You know, Sean, we, we had some VHS tapes in the storage room uh, at the yeah. school. Now it's always like. But we didn't have any VCRs in the room, so I'm like, I'm oh, okay. not sure how you play these, but we still have. Nobody got rid of them. There was was there a copy of Donald Duck in Math Magic Land? There probably was. I would be shocked if there wasn't. If uh, if you youngsters don't know, that's the the tape that uh, here in Colorado public schools, at least, we watched 
roughly one million times before high school. Yeah, that was if a math teacher didn't know what to do for about 30 minutes, they would show Donald Duck's math magic or whatever the fuck, yeah. and you'd learn about the golden square. I have a DVD of that somewhere that I got from like a Disney DVD. Cl- it's like very rare. Um, but, you know, I will, one day I'll, I'll start teaching math and just subject my <laughs> students to that. <laughs> you just got to change degrees very dramatically. Yes, yes. Uh, they also announced that there's a new mainline Sonic game coming out in 2022. And uh, no details on that whatsoever. Nope. There are rumors that it's going to be a game called Sonic Rangers that's going to be some form of open world something or other, or it's going to have, yeah. like, it's very, and that's, like, entirely rumors from, like, a 4chan post from, like, two years ago or something that yeah. seems to, the game seems to probably be called Sonic Rangers from what people can tell, um, but, yeah, um, I, I'm just happy that, you know, it's been a while. It hasn't been, what, Sonic Forces was the last yes. mainline Sonic game. Um, so I'm happy that Which they're... was the same year as Sonic Mania. I yes. mean, it's, yeah. They've... It's been a good chunk of time. So I'm glad that they're they're taking another shot at it because a lot of Sonic games aren't great. But every once in a while, there's a really great Sonic game. So I always want more. Where the fuck is Sonic Mania 2 is my question. Yeah, that's a good question. But, uh, you know, we still have Sonic Mania and that's great. You know, I would love them to try something new. We'll see what happens. Um, they did also, we learned this week, Roger Craig Smith is continuing to voice Sonic yes. in the games. He had, four months ago, he and several of the other actors who have done it since Sonic Boom started, they did the TV show and then all the games that cast, a lot of it was like breaking up and we didn't couldn't quite tell why because it wasn't all of them. It wasn't clear, like, are they going to replace them with the movie actors? Because it was specifically the characters that are going to be in the next movie. It's like mm-hmm. Sonic, Knuckles, and Tails. But if Roger Craig Smith is coming back, I'm wondering if, like, maybe they've abandoned that plan. Mm-hmm. And I hope they are, because the current Sonic cast is yeah. just great. Go watch some clips of the Sonic Boom TV show if you haven't. Yes, It's yeah. a great cast. Yeah, I've never watched an episode of that show, but I've, I've like, I have multiple times gone down big YouTube yes. rabbit holes on, like, it's just coming up and recommending clips and being like, well, that sounds funny. And I've probably watched, like, three or four hours of that yes. show just in random five minute clips it's great it's you know sonic is always up and down but that means there's always good stuff too somewhere yeah. somewhere in the world all right sony had a state of play this week on horizon forbidden west i did not watch that sean but you said you did yes and it, it's awesome um if people who liked um horizon zero dawn like it looks like it is a really strong sequel at least in terms of the stuff they showed um it's that kind of thing where it looks like they're just taking a very strong iterative approach to the sequel design where they're looking at what are all like the areas in the original game that obviously like fell short of what people wanted or like what their design goals were and how do we kind of like shore that up um while also enhancing the things that were already good so the it's a really good like 14 15 minute video the game looks gorgeous it's obviously the ps5 version they're showing I have no idea what the fuck the PS4 version is going to look like because it doesn't look like this game is being like... If this game looks like it's being designed for the PS5 first and foremost and being ported to the PS4, at least based on... Like, it looks a lot more impressive than even like what Insomniac did with Miles Morales over Spider-Man. Um, so it's a pretty, pretty big upgrade in that respect and Horizon was already one of the best-looking games in the market. Um, but the, some of the stuff they showed that looked cool was... Um, they're expanding out what the like the against human combat looks like which was the worst part of the first game it was something that like the first game's combat against the robots was awesome and then you just kind of mashed square to hit humans in the head with your spear and it was really bad i didn't even know you fought humans in the first game no it's, one talks you about don't that. do it a lot um and if people talk about it, it's just because it's bad and it feels like something that exists entirely because you kind of have to because of the story they're telling. Yeah. Because the story has human antagonists in it. Um, so you need to fight human people sometimes. Um, but they showed, like, it seems like one of their goals is to kind of 
blend the in, like human combat with the robot combat instead of having it be very kind of clearly sectioned off. So they've expanded the melee stuff. There's like combos you can do. There are like special moves you can do with the melee combat. Um, they've taken some of the concepts from the robot combat of shooting off pieces of the robot armor and put it onto some of the human enemies that are like the, like this big bruiser dude. She fights that has a bunch of armor planning on him and stuff that you rip off in a similar fashion you do when you're fighting the enemy robots. And then the big spectacle moment at the end of the, the gameplay showcase was her fighting one of those big Oliphant looking things from Lord of the Rings that they had in the trailer for Horizon 2. Um, and that fight is incredible. And it's got like the big tower with all the humans on top of it made out of like wood on top of this big robot elephant. And it looks fucking sick. And so she's kind of fighting humans and the robots at the same time and balancing that. Um, they've expanded exploration by doing what every good sequel should do which is give the character a grappling grappling hook yeah every video game sequel if you want to be like how do we make our video game better did the first one have a grappling hook no then give her a grappling hook in the sequel um so they also took uh clearly a, a page from breath of the wild with she has like a hang glider thing that she does now too so it looks like i like it's not going to be breath of the wild style you can climb on anything but they're clearly expanding out her right. traversal mechanics to make that like more fleshed out so yeah, it, it's just, it, I was very impressed watching that video. As someone who liked Horizon Zero Dawn a lot, but it was very much a, like, studio's first attempt at that kind of game, because Guerrilla had only ever made first-person shooters, at least in, like, the kind of modern era of games. Um, Horizon Zero Dawn was a really cool first game that had some clear signs of a studio that hadn't made a game like that before. And this just looks to me like they really understood where the weak points of that game was, how to expand on what was strong and shore up those weaker elements um, all while keeping like their visual presentation and all that. And the music is fucking great in that trailer. Um, all of it's really good. So if people are interested, I'd highly recommend checking it out because it is a really cool looking video. Awesome. That is one of those games I, I want to catch up on over the summer because I never played the original because it came out. The, you mentioned Breath of the Wild. That yes. game came out the week of Breath of the uh -huh. Wild, which is why people are like, why have you never played Horizon? Because I was covering the Switch that week. You were doing that. And then Persona 5 came out like two weeks yes. later. It was a very crazy time. And then just once you miss a game, it's hard to catch up on. It. Yes, because video games are long yes. and, the, and they come out all the time. But I have the complete edition sitting on my shelf at home. I got it for like five bucks in a sale. So I've got it. I will play it. Um, I'm still. I'm also still just holding out for the inevitable 60 FPS patch yeah. because I really want that. Because it's. I mean, it's fucking on PC already. They uh -huh. got to do that. So yes, uh, Sony also had an investor report this week that usually we would not report on, but I thought there were a couple interesting tidbits in here. Um, one, this was just a stat, and they had a little graphic with this that I am saving for future like classes and stuff I teach, showing that female proportion among console ownership has grown from 18% in the PS1 era to 41% on the PS4 slash PS5, which very much mirrors trends we've seen overall in the industry of women coming close to, at, or over parity, depending on which part of the industry you're talking about. Yeah. On mobile, it's 50-50. Mm -hmm. In consoles, it's still like a little more male in, in a lot of these kind of things, but this is the same kind of thing you're seeing. It's very near parity at this yeah. point. And, you know, I um, this is something that I think about a lot because I just finished teaching a class on video games um, at the... Well, I was co-teaching. I was t uh, assistant teaching that class. And one of the things my I would get a lot from male students on papers was the, you know... Um, you know, games are, are sexist because most people who play games are men, and so that's who they market to. And it's that fallacy that, like, I kind of get it if you're a college freshman mm -hmm. who's never actually critically thought about this and has spent their entire life playing games marketed exclusively to white men, that you would think, oh, they must do that because only white guys play games. 
that's yeah. not true. And I would have to show them the stats and be like, quit saying that. And they, they would just say it over and over again. Yeah, it's very much a thing of where a lot of, I think both like the video game, like the gamer culture or whatever, um, and then also in that very Hollywood way, like the studio kind of, the publishing studio perspective is very out of sync with like the reality of who actually yes. plays games and how they play games. Yeah. So I enjoy, I just like that that is a stat that they put out in the world with like a slide because it's just an easy way to show like things have changed. Yeah, and having it from one of like the major first parties like makes it it's it's not like some like third party research marketing yes. group or something. It's Sony telling this is you their this. data. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Uh, the PS5 standard edition, the one with the disc drive is expected to break even in costs next month. I found that interesting. Mm -hmm. um, notably, the other one is not, because they're selling that yes, at a pretty no, significant That's going to take a while well, for the yeah. $400 one to break even, because uh, a disk drive does not cost you 100 bucks. No, but the disk version is coming close to breaking even, and, and you know, if you guys don't remember, the PS3 took years. It was yeah. late into the lifespan that that broke even. The PS4, they never sold at a loss, so am I Other right than, like, very, or, like, yeah, I think okay. it, it might be actually a similar window to what's oh, okay, happening with the PS5. Okay. Like, yeah. right at the beginning of it was all that a little bit of a loss and then it pretty quickly ended up being yeah. like basically breaking even and this is just surprising to me because like the supply limitations they yeah. cannot sell as many of these as i think they were maybe planning to certainly at this point six months in oh yeah um, no but yeah. they're but they're selling every single one obviously mm -hmm. so yeah so demand still far far outstripping supply and I, it seems like that's going to be the case this whole year i mean that's a whole yes. conversation we'll need to have at some point is that i feel like this generation one is probably going to be longer because of this. Yes. And two, the, the the overall transition is just going to take longer because publishers are, even though these are selling very well, they're not going to be able to have as many out as they would like. And so it's going to be probably you're going to want to hedge your bets for longer than you otherwise would. Mm -hmm. So so we'll see. Um, like, you know, Horizon is still going to be cross-platform, right? Yeah. And um, we'll see about all that. So that's interesting. Um, they uh, kind of like accidentally announced that there are, there are more games coming to PC, Uncharted 4 and additional games. They had a little slide showing that. Mm -hmm. So Uncharted 4 is going to be on PC. That's crazy. That would be by far the most like big marquee Sony title. Yeah. Um, they were claiming specifically Horizon Zero Dawn did really well on PC. Yes. They said it got a 250% ROI return on investment on its PC release, which is not surprising. That game had a very, very hyped PC release. Um, and so it seems like they're going to do more of this. I think it is... So they've done... Days Gone just came out. They yeah. did Horizon and they did Death Stranding. Well, they, they, didn't, they didn't do yeah. Death Stranding, but Death Stranding came out on PC. Yes, yeah. yes. So Horizon really was Sony's first yes. foray into this. Yeah, because that port was... I mean, published by them. Right, yeah. yeah. I mean, Sony now has... I think after Days Gone, they like have an official publisher page on Steam, which yeah. is like a weird thing to see. It's very weird. And I think the question here is like whether they're fully going to embrace like, they're not at the point of xbox yet where they're going to have everything day and date they no. have not gone that far but like at the point where you're doing uncharted 4 and it's like that's your biggest franchise or it's like the most notable sony franchise yeah uncharted. i would say outside of last of us i think has taken over uncharted in that respect that's probably true that's probably but, true but I, yeah i think I'm, i think of uncharted because it's got it's it's a mascot franchise yes, and it has it's been around for a lot longer yes it's but you're right last spanned of us two has, whole generations of this point. yeah but you're right last of us has sold more obviously um but are they just going to be doing like several year old games eventually on pc or will they be trying to at some point doing something closer to day and date they also had this slide about moving PlayStation beyond console in a way Xbox has talked about and actually done. 
Um, but they didn't give many concrete details of how they plan on doing that. And it doesn't really... That's just not how Sony has ever really operated. I mean, Sony has, like... The weird thing with Sony is that they have these, like, arms that they don't, like, support very directly. But, like, PlayStation Now is a thing you can play on your PC. Like, you can right. stream PlayStation games from PlayStation Now on your PC. Same with, like, remote play. It's just not as, like full-bodied is what xbox does with game pass yeah. it's like they have had these services for a long time they're just not like really sort of healthily supported by sony or they're not like really heavily marketed yeah. certainly um it seems like pc stuff is a no-brainer because yeah. i think like what and i think the reason we're seeing this is like i think xbox's experiments recently have taught us they're different markets yes. putting your game on pc and ps5 is not giving away copies to the competition mm -hmm. because people who own a pc good enough to play horizon zero dawn probably don't aren't generally interested in buying a ps5 yeah they don't need it you know um and there's some weirdos like me who kind of have both but i host a podcast and stuff yes. you know mm -hmm. like most people kind of choose one or the other so it's it really is just a net positive to do it and and I hope we see more because it's good when you do this kind of cross development it generally makes the game better mm -hmm. I think um, so we'll see it's an interesting thing they're doing uh, they also accidentally announced that God of War two is called God of War Ragnarok maybe they accidentally announced that I don't know if you saw the whole thing was yeah. they just pulled as as is like hilariously common in big like company investor bullshit is like they just Google searched God of War two or yes. something and just pulled the logo that was like a fan-made logo and put it in their thing right. and then it was replaced with shortly afterwards from what i understand the official logo treatment from the end of that teaser they did okay yeah. so uh, because what was funny is Corey barlog the director of these games posted on twitter after that happened a captain picard facepalm gif uh-huh and we don't know if that's you fucking idiots used a fan thing or you announced the title of my game without asking. Uh -huh. So who knows? I it seems like that's the title of the game. I would I, I, I assume it is because it just feels like I mean it's a good title. It solves yeah. the problem of calling another game God of War Two and just making everybody upset and Google like useless. Um, it's like a lot easier to Google search God of War Ragnarok than it is God of War Two, and then you're getting a fucking game made in two thousand five. Yeah, exactly. So there you go, um, and they did not announce a Bloodborne remaster or PC port. Fuck you, Sony. No, I mean from software has to make that. I know, yeah. but yeah, but you, you, Sony could throw them the money. They sure. published it. Just, yeah. just I just want my sixty FPS port of Bloodborne, which we Me know too. can be done. Yes, because a guy did it alone on a PS4. Yeah. So please, please put that out because that's the front. You know that and God of or God of War. Dark Souls 3. Why yes. could I not figure that out? I don't know. I wasn't Dark sure Souls where you were going. That and Dark Souls 3 are the FromSoft games I haven't played yet. Dark Souls 3, I can play at 60 FPS on my PS5. Bloodborne is the last FromSoft game you cannot play at 60 FPS on your yeah. PS5. So please do that because I, I I have trouble going back to 30 FPS, mm -hmm. especially on stuff like that where I've played that kind of game so much at 60 now. Yeah, and Bloodborne also has like weird issues with its frame rate anyways. Yeah. That, like It's not like a smooth 30 frames per second either. Yes. So. so anyway... Uh, all right. Uh, other news this week outside of video games. Mm -hmm. Amazon bought MGM, the Lion Company, for around eight point five billion dollars this week. Well, it's gonna that it has to like pending approval. Yes, that one will definitely go through. There's no there's Amazon is too big, but that is not like a pressing antitrust case. They're buying a big catalog. Um, the one that may see some pushback is AT and T, which bought Warner Media several years ago has now realized, oh shit, we don't know how to run a movie company, uh -huh. as has been abundantly fucking clear from the last couple years. Yes. 
and they are spinning off Warner Media, merging it with Discovery. Yes, that Discovery, the Animal Network, uh-huh. for forty-three billion dollars. What? Okay, let's take these one at a time. Uh huh. Okay. The Amazon one is pretty clear cut. Everybody wants more catalog. Um, MGM has a very big catalog. MGM has also been trying to sell itself for years. MGM has been like going through cycles of bankruptcy and all this stuff for like two decades now. Yeah. It's why the Hobbit movies took longer to make than was expected. It's why there was that big delay between James Bond 2 and 3, I believe. Uh, not Daniel Craig's James Bond yeah. 2 and 3. Um, Quantum of Solace and Skyfall because MGM went bankrupt in the middle there. All sorts of fucking stuff. They can't distribute their own movies anymore, which is why, like, Sony distributed the first four Craig Bond movies, but the new one, No Time to Die, I believe is universal in the States. It's all sorts of stuff going on. Um, So they've desperately wanted to sell. Um, They have finally sold. Amazon will own MGM. I have no idea if they really plan on, like, keeping around MGM as a production arm, but they will get the whole catalog. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are focusing on the James Bond of it all because that is the most valuable thing in the catalog. They will get 23 or 4 James Bond movies that they can put up on Amazon Prime right away and that will be the exclusive streaming home and that's a good deal. But, um, you know, MGM has lots and lots of other stuff. And it was a funny part of this announcement was like Amazon said something about like, and we will focus on developing new versions of all our MGM IP in the years to come, which very much sounded like we're not quite sure what's in the package yet, yeah. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna sift through it and see what we can do with it. Um, the other side of this is that Apple had been in talks to buy MGM for about a year now, um, and they had, it started with them. They were trying to buy No Time to Die to do a streaming release during the pandemic, and I think wisely everyone was like, "We it'll be big in a year. We can just yeah. hold on to it, right?" Um, but then there was this talk about buying MGM because Apple. Apple TV Plus is a really good service if you haven't used it. It's it's new TV shows are really good, but it doesn't have a back catalog because they're starting from scratch. And Apple obviously does not own like a big content library. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what they were doing. And I think Jeff Bezos was like, I have infinite money. Yeah. So I will just pay more. And that's what happened. So it's all kind of gross. Um, Amazon... I would really love if Amazon would please, for the love of God, split their Prime video app in half and have the stuff that is actually on Amazon Prime for the, your subscription cost in one app and the stuff that you have to buy or rent in another app because uh-huh. it's the most annoying app yeah. in the world because it's not divided. It, it, I mean, it's like one of the worst streaming yes, The only streaming app that is worse than the Amazon Prime app is the Funimation app, which is the Funimation app is unusable. Um, Hulu might be worse, but yeah. Oh, well, I haven't used Hulu in years. Okay. Uh, Hulu's, um, if you have Hulu with ads... Uh, if you turn off the ads, Hulu gets much better, but Hulu with ads is a goddamn nightmare disaster because it's running on basically the same software it was 10 years ago. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. So, Hulu is also probably pretty bad, Hulu's but bad, if it's yeah. like it was yeah. when I last used it. But yeah, no, the Amazon Prime streaming app for a company that has effectively infinite money and can yes. do whatever it wants, I just don't understand why. And it doesn't matter like how. Like, it doesn't matter if you're going on a PC or you're using, I mean, it's better on a PC than it's on a console as would be the case for any streaming app. But it's bad any way you use it. It's awful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's bad on PC too because you just go to Amazon like your search because it's completely mucked up their search results. This is something I hate is that if you want to look for a piece of physical media on Amazon now, a DVD or a Blu-ray, it will hide. Yeah. It literally will not show you the result. It will. Ju- you search like let's say you want to watch 
fucking Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. You search Dawn of the Dead and it'll show you the rental or Amazon Prime streaming, whatever they have, the digital versions. But you can scroll through 50 pages. It will not show you physical media that you can buy. You have to specifically search Dawn of the Dead DVD or something. And then it'll come up. Yeah. But they suppress all of that and it's fucking annoying. And we're getting off track here, but yeah. I mean, point being, Amazon sucks. It, the, the least they can do is make their fucking app Yes, like serviceable. If you're going to destroy, yeah. like, if you're going to be this immoral company that's going to destroy, like, all of our like reasonable expectations on like what businesses should be in the world, at the very least, make the user experience somewhat friendly. Yes, yes. So you know, there's a lot left to see about this deal. I, to me, this deal does not upset me in the way like a Disney Fox merger because MGM was mostly a dead company. This yeah. is this is a catalog they're buying more than like, you know, Disney bought Fox to get the catalog and then to cut out the competition. Yes, it's like. That deal should not have gone through under any definition of antitrust. Mm -hmm. This is like, whatever. Yeah. But um, it's, you know, it's another the buy-up. We'll see. MGM has a lot of existing... This is what's confusing. It's like the last 10 years of MGM stuff is mixed in a lot of places. So, like, MGM produces the Fargo TV show. Hmm. But FX airs it and also produces it. So it's like a co-production. FX is owned by Disney... Where does Fargo ultimately live? It lives on Hulu right now because it's FX and it's Disney. But like MGM's name is also on it. Um, a lot of the MGM catalog is owned by Warner Brothers now. You know, it's like like uh, if you watch Wizard of Oz, it's got the lion at the beginning. Right. But that's a Warner Brothers movie now. So there's a lot of confusing stuff. The bottom line is Jeff Bezos paid $8 billion for James Bond. And I hate to say it, but it's probably a good deal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, this AT&T thing, though, is wild. Yeah. I, I have not been able to kind of get around my head around what the fuck is happening with this. So, to back up, um, Warner Media, which is the parent company of Warner Brothers and, and Time Warner and all that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, they have been horrifically mismanaged the last couple of years. And it's basically because AT&T bought them in a merger that... Another one that just obviously should not have gone through. Yeah. Um, and AT&T kind of replaced a lot of the movie execs with their fucking cell phone execs who don't know how to run a movie studio. They have been trying to run it more like a cell phone company. It's been very bad. Uh, all of the like rough stuff around HBO Max comes from bad AT&T decision-making. Decision um, there's been a lot of like turnover at the different arms of Warner. There have been just massive layoffs of people who've been with that company forever. One shakeup that's near and dear to my heart is that Warner Brothers had by far the most robust home video arm of any of the studios in America, and they have been gutted over the last year. The AT&T people just, especially during the pandemic, just got, got rid of people who have been there since, like, before the advent of DVD. Mm -hmm. And, like, have been shepherding this library. And just people you would have thought would never have lost those jobs. Because even if you're lowering your home video stuff, you would need some of those experts there. And, like, what are you, you're paying them, you know... Uh, probably a decent salary yeah, but not enough normal to, salary normal salaries yeah. like for Warner Brothers who cares um, this also means that like Warner Archive which is this amazing uh, service that, that makes Blu-rays and DVDs of classic films that otherwise would not they're manufactured on demand so mm -hmm. so they don't have to do full print runs but you get movies like I just got a Bachelor's a, I got a Jackie Chan movie I got some Popeye cartoons I got the classic noir gun crazy stuff that would never come out otherwise mm -hmm. it's really good stuff um they fired all the Warner Archive people. They have a year of releases that were ready to go, and so they're still coming out, but we don't know what the future of that is. Mm -hmm. It's just that the company is kind of in shambles. And AT&T finally, I feel like, realized we don't know how to do this. So they are offloading Warner Brothers, and what they're doing is they are... 
I don't know what the $43 billion is for. I yeah. don't know who's getting it. I don't know who's spending it. But for $43 billion, they are spinning off Discovery, which I guess they also own or are buying. And they are combining that with Warner Media. And AT&T people will now be detached from Warner. But there will be uh, Warner and Discovery people who will now lead this new venture, which... The idea, as it was explained to me on a podcast I listened to, uh, the Hollywood Reporters TV podcast, they, they did a good job on that this week, um, was that if you look at like what Warner has in their streaming catalog, which is what everyone cares about right now, they have a really deep well of movies, they have a lot of fiction stuff, they have a lot of TV, and they have a lot of ongoing new TV because they have HBO and they have all this stuff, right? Mm. What they don't have is reality content or unscripted content. Discovery has a lot of that, both in like what we think of as the nature show stuff, but they also do... I don't think they air hoarders, but shit like that, right? Yeah, like ice road truckers yeah. and that kind of shit. Yeah. yeah. So the idea is that you can kind of combine those and then you could have sort of both sides of it and it kind of fills, they fill in the gaps in each other's libraries and that'll be a big new company moving forward. Um, but I don't know. This is going to take a while to go through and to like settle and to see who's in charge and if they, they get some parts of the company up and running again. But yeah, I mean, Warner Warner is a regularly pretty habitually mismanaged studio. It has been for most of our lifetimes. But like, it's been really bad under AT&T. And so this is probably good overall because we're separating that off. But like, Man Alive, this is why we have antitrust laws. Uh -huh. Because it shouldn't be up to like AT&T to realize five years in, oh shit, this was a really bad deal the government let us get away with. We weren't equipped for this. The government should just tell you, one... This is bad and anti-competitive. And two, you're not equipped to do this. Uh -huh. Stop. Yeah. It's stupid. It's fucking stupid. Yeah. And like I think the thing that's – because it's such this weird mix of different companies where you're like, so who reports to who and like what – how who's running what? And like it's a very weird like whirlpool of all these different factors. And then, and then Warner, just, you know, has all this – IP from all over the place, right? So, like, yeah. they have, like, that's DC Comics. Um, and it's also, like, the one of my big questions is, does this, what happens to Mortal Kombat? Like, what happens, like, to the Warner Games stuff, right? Like, is that now owned by Discovery? Or is that staying at AT&T? Like, all that shit I is really I think confusing. all of that stuff is getting spun off. Okay. But, like, I mean, there are questions, because they have all these arms. Like, you know, remember... Warner Brothers owning DC is not, like, set in stone. Uh -huh. That could be spun off. There's, like, yeah. all these things that could happen. Who in the hell knows? But, yeah, I mean, HBO Max is the focus of this thing for now. And HBO Max does have a lot of things annoying me about it. It does, in fact, have a great library. How could it not with that fucking catalog they uh -huh. have access to? But, like, you know, I think they have a lot of stuff to figure out about that interface and how they have pitched that platform and what it is on a day-to-day -day basis um you know it does it, it still lacks the sort of easy clear pitch of some of these other platforms that are out there so who the hell knows but yeah that's what's going on with that i'm still confused but I no feel, you should be yeah yeah it's, yeah it's i feel like somehow i think all this will be gone i think it's just like warner will somehow be gone in like 10 years yeah that's what this feels like to me we'll see um Sean, my last piece of news today uh -huh. is just something that makes me happy. Yep. 
Uh, Dune, David Lynch's Dune. Yes. Which is a movie... Which, which he would be very happy that we were calling it David Lynch's Dune. Yes. It's not like he ever took his name off the movie for an extended cut on TV and had it directed by Alan Smithy. He would never do that. No, of course not. Yeah. Um, David Lynch's Dune is coming out in 4K and Blu-ray oh, in, yeah. in August from Arrow Video. The fine folks at Arrow Video who do... At this point, like, Arrow Video does more lavish productions than I have ever fucking seen. Even Criterion does not do as lavish as Arrow does. Uh-huh. I just got Arrow's Battle Royale set in. Um, in 4K, you might have seen some pictures of that on my Twitter, and it is, one, an amazing release, like, technically, that movie's never looked that good, but it's just, just they, they included, Sean, a full hardback book about Kenji Fukasaku in that set. There you go. The people at Arrow are insane, but they are doing a Dune set. There will be four separate versions of it. You can go through and look. There's limited edition Blu-ray, 4K, 4K Plus Blu-ray, Steelbook. But you are getting a brand new 4K restoration of the movie. You're getting a 60-page book. You're getting a uh, full-size poster. You're getting six postcard-sized lobby card reproductions. Deluxe packaging. Some some versions have a Steelbook. You're getting two new audio commentaries. All of the legacy bonus features that have ever been made, a brand new feature-length documentary, all of this crazy stuff. Um, if you buy the limited edition version, you get a 100-page book in addition to the 60-page book. It's nuts. Like, you can look here, Sean. I have them up, the different versions. Mm-hmm. I will say I have already pre-ordered the one on the bottom here that is uh, exclusive to Zavi, Z-A-V-V-I, which is a really good uh, company for buying this kind of stuff. Um, and it has the Blu-ray, the 4K, the bonus disc, the two books, all of this shit. It's actually surprisingly cheap for what it is. That cost me with shipping 50 bucks, which is not bad. Oh. For, yeah. I, no. Okay. I should yeah, just get that. Just get that. Well, yeah. I'll pre-order this I'll, once I know what address which, I'm living yes. at in two yeah. weeks. Yeah. I'll, I'll send you the link to like the specific one I got, Sean, um, because that's 50. And then the, the cheaper version is about 40 probably. But yeah, they're doing, they're going all out. This is, and I am going to laugh so hard when I say this sentence out loud, the first David Lynch film to be released in 4K. There you go. You it's exactly how you would want it. Yeah, there's no more deserving movie of such a lavish fucking physical home media release. And I say that with all sincerity because I love this movie. I, I love it too. And it is just so... Cr- this is why physical media is great, Sean. Yes. Because Dune flopped. It is, it is unambiguous. That movie yeah. failed. Mm-hmm. And it is hilarious to me that you can now have 40 years later... A movie that bombed spectacularly, getting a nicer home video release than the vast majority of movies that have ever been produced. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be like 95 plus percent of all the movies that have ever won Best Movie at the Academy Awards doesn't get anything that even approaches the <laughs> no, quality of this set. No, no. It's, it's amazing that like, and I love like Arrow goes in for all this cult stuff. And it's that, you know, A, it's David Lynch. He's got a fandom. Dune has a fucking fandom. There's a new Dune movie coming out. Yeah. The stars have all aligned. I mean, I this, just, like, Dennis Villeneuve must be fucking quaking in his boots because he realizes this movie's tanked now because everyone can just buy this. <laughs> Yes, but I just, I also wonder, like, if David Lynch was consulted on this or anything, or, like, saw the announcement and went, like, for that movie, that one sucked. Let me tell you about the straight story, which is great. You should watch the straight story. It's one of my favorite David Lynch movies. But, like, David Lynch does not like Dune. No, I I like to think, and this is backed up by nothing, but in my head, I don't think David Lynch... Acknowledges that this movie exists. I don't think he cares. Right? I think if someone told him, he was like, right. oh, okay. And then he just moved on to talking about whatever else he wanted to talk about. He talks about. about the weather on Twitter. Exactly, yes. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, no, I uh, I have a David Lynch shelf 
with all my Blu-rays, because um, Criterion has steadily been getting a lot of his stuff out on Blu-ray, and I have all of that. I have my Twin Peaks sets. Um, I have the straight story on DVD, because it's the only way it's ever been released. Please, someone do the straight story. That's owned by Disney, so, so we're fucked. Anyway, um, it's the straight story, the only movie that starts with Walt Disney Pictures Presents a David Lynch film, mm-hmm. which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, now Dune will sit on that shelf, too, with uh, this lavish fucking production. Yeah, with like two books and your theater cards. <laughs> yeah. So I just, it's something about that that just, one, I am 100% behind it, but also it's fucking funny. It's, yeah, it's great. It's, people have not watched that movie. It's, it's, it's so good. It's so good. Oh, it's so here, good. Here's the best part of this announcement, too. So this does not include the extended TV cut that's like three and a half hours long uh-huh. where they just threw in all the extra footage. Um, and the specific, you can still find it online if you want to go find it, but the specific reason is Universal, which owns Dune, has pulled that from circulation and won't let anyone use it anymore. And I, I think that's kind of funny. Uh-huh. Um, because I, I think some people find that version interesting, but like David Lynch took his name off it for a reason. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's not a director's cut. People sometimes say that. It's absolutely not. Um, there really was no director's cut of Dune. Uh-huh. It was weird. Uh, the director's cut is David Lynch getting it down to 140 minutes by having narration over action scenes. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, um, there you go. Maybe, maybe we'll... No, not maybe. We will do a Dune podcast later. I've been year. wanting to do that Dune podcast forever. Okay. I feel like we've been holding off on it because the new movie's coming out. Yeah. I'm just like, I should should I read it. the book so we can do a whole yeah. shenanigan? Sure. Okay. Yeah. I yeah. I okay. I touched and packed my Dune copy of Dune from when I was in high school just two days ago. I have it on Kindle. I'll do it that way. It's easier because it's a heavy book. Um, <laughs> yeah. This is this whole experience is making me kind of wish I could tolerate reading books on e-readers, but yeah, I can't. That's okay. I, so I just have like there's, seven boxes of books. There's some I can, if I'm reading for fun, I can do it on uh, Kindle. If I'm reading for work, I always have to do it yeah. by hand. Anyway, um, Sean, you want to talk about some Batman? I think we should go beyond what we're talking about right now, Jonathan. I think we should return to talking about the Joker by talking about Batman Beyond: Return of the Joker. Na 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 Batman. All right. No, you got it. This is like this is early two thousands. Yes, Batman Beyond, incredibly dated in some ways, very good in other ways. Yes, it is the Gen X Batman in in all of its glory. Yes. So, Sean, uh, last time we talked about Batman and Robin. Um, <laughs> yeah, we did. We we're now we are past the Schumacher era is over. Thank God. Now this podcast can or this topic on our podcast can resume at a normal pace. Yes, we are in the new millennium. Batman be, Batman Beyond begins in uh-huh. 1999. Yes, this comes out in 2000, pretty much dead middle of the run, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and and this is still about five years before Batman will get back on screens with Batman Begins. But tell us a little bit about Batman Beyond and sort of like the origins of this movie and just kind of the how we build up to this point. Yeah, so so Batman Beyond is was originally a cartoon, right? And it was a successor to Batman the Animated Series. Specifically, you had Batman the Animated Series, which ran until like 95. Then that team transitioned into the Superman Animated Series. A couple of years into that, around 97 or so, is where they kind of bring Batman back for the new Batman adventures and they... It's like a TV power hour, the new Batman Superman adventures. It's a combined TV show with the world's finest TV movie. Um, and and that, that is now just usually considered season three of Batman yes. the Animated Series. So if you're looking for like the complete set, it's all in one. But they were they were technically two separate productions. Yes, that now are kind of combined together. And you can very easily tell the split because the art style for Batman changed to be more like Superman. what the Superman style was. And it's more fluid because it's a slightly simplified design and stuff like that. 
Um, and so that goes for a couple of years. And then when Batman, the new Batman Adventures wraps up, that team then moves on to working on a new TV show, Batman Beyond, which is an original production. Um, there have been versions of Batman Beyond that have existed in the comics, but nothing has been like hugely successful in the way that this TV show was. Where in 1999, their idea was let's create a new Batman, let's update it, let's like, like it's technically in the continuity of those other TV shows. It exists. It like chronologically at the end point of the DC animated universe that includes stuff like Static Shock, Justice League, Justice League Unlimited. Like some of the Batman Beyond stuff pops up in the Justice League stuff occasionally. Because didn't like Batman Beyond kind of end suddenly, and so the real finale yes. is on Justice League? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. yeah. So Justice League Unlimited has, I think it was going to originally be the finale of that show, but then it ended up going for another season. But it has a Batman Beyond episode that kind of wraps up some hanging stuff from the show. Um, but yeah, the concept for Batman Beyond was let's have th this aged up Batman. It's like 40 to 50 years in the future of the DC stuff that you know. And Bruce Wayne is this crotchety old motherfucker living in Wayne Manor. Um, and you have this new main character, Terry McGinnis, who he's kind of this juvenile delinquent. Um, he stumbles into Wayne Manor. His, unrelated to that, his Terry's father is murdered by the main villain of like the TV pilot. This is like basically a movie of Batman Beyond. Um, and in order to get revenge, Terry steals the bat suit from old Mr. Wayne's um, bat cave that, that Terry had stumbled into and uses that to try to get revenge. And through that process begins a friendship with Bruce Wayne. And Bruce Wayne says, you here, you take up the cowl. You will be the new Batman, Batman Beyond. Um, and then they started the whole TV show that is kind of like this grim, cool, like Gen X cyberpunk Batman um, and that TV show fucking rules. And if people have not seen it, it is fan-fucking-tastic. I haven't seen a ton of it. I had not watched any of it until this year, Sean. Well, I, I'm sure I had seen some on TV back sure, in the day. Sure, yeah. But, like, in my adult memory. Mm -hmm. um, and I watched the, the pilot and some of the episodes after that. I need. I would love to have make the time to go watch a ton of it. But, you know, Gundam and all sorts of stuff, right? Yes, we got a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> but anyway, uh, the, if you have not watched it, the pilot on its own is fully satisfying. Yes. I forget how many episodes it is. I think it's three. Yeah, I think it's three episodes um, that are basically edited together. Yeah, yeah. And, and you should at least watch that because it's a fully satisfying experience. The opening scene of Batman Beyond, which is the last day Bruce Wayne is Batman, and he's in the Batman Beyond suit, which he in the story invented to like help his ailing body. It's like an enhanced, it's almost like an Iron Man Batman hybrid kind of yeah. suit. Uh, like in the movie Return of the Joker he's got fucking like Astro Boy jets on his feet uh -huh. and all that stuff it's great um, and it's his last day on the job and out of desperation he picks up a gun and like aims it at a criminal and that is his moment where he goes shit I'm done and he yeah. like and he drops the cowl and, and then you go way into the future and you meet Terry McGinnis who is voiced by Will Friedle who if you are our age you have an affinity for because yes. Will Friedle was in everything he's a great voice actor uh, you might also remember him from Kim Possible if you watch that uh -huh. he's Ron Stoppable he's on he was he was Batman he's in every he's in a lot of stuff I mean he got his big break before voice acting is he's the older brother on Boy Meets World right yeah yeah, yeah. so he in, in live action stuff too so yeah. Um, but he voices Terry. It's got this really cool art style that I think effectively melds the original Batman the Animated Series with like the new Superman Batman Power Hour kind of like more fluid simplified animation. Yeah. Um, it, it looks like the best way I can describe it from watching the movie last night is it looks like the Jetsons if it were cyberpunk and fucked up. Yes, yeah, it's this very like exaggerated, ridiculous future city, yeah. Neo-Gotham, like it's all that kind of stuff. 
Um, yes, it's like a very dark noir take on like a Jetson style feature. Yeah, they um, went for it. <laughs> yeah, it's got, you know, and it's like a lot of the plots of Batman Beyond deal with like gene splicing and you've got like half human, half beast hybrid people and a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, and very critically, um, the main character, this is super important for the movie, um, Terry is very, very different from Bruce Wayne. He is, like, as a character, he is much more made in the mold of Spider-Man than yeah, he is. Yeah, he's like Peter Parker meets Batman. Yes, exactly. Like, he's a, he's like a punk delinquent version of Peter Parker because his whole thing is is not that he was eight years old and his parents were murdered in front of him and he then created the plan and dedicated his life to fighting <laughs> crime, right? He is a juvenile delinquent who his dad got murdered, but critically his mom and his younger brother are still alive and he still lives with them. Um, they're only in the movie for like one or two scenes, but like, you know, they're major supporting characters in the TV show. Um, and he is Batman out of kind of choice and part of his motivation to be Batman is to kind of repent for the sins of his past of being this kind of, you know, violent gang youth. Um, yeah. And that's where his motivation comes from. So he is not alone in this. He always has Bruce Wayne on the comm who's sitting in the Batcave and so it's kind of like a dual protagonist show between him and Bruce Wayne voiced by Kevin Conroy yes. if you don't know it is fully in that continuity because you have Kevin Conroy doing I think his best work yes this is my favorite thing he's yes. done is crotchety ass old Bruce Wayne is so good and that's saying something because we love everything Kevin Conroy has done as Batman yeah but this is like oh wow it is so fun to listen to him do that voice um, yeah, so Batman Beyond, it's a cool show. I would love to watch more of it. And, I mean, it's significant also because Batman, m most superheroes, there's like the alternate version. There's, yeah. you know, you got your different green flavors of Green Lantern, and you've got now two major Spider-Mans. Yeah, but you there have been lots of other Spider-Mans that right. time has forgotten, yes. like Spider-Man 2099 and shit like that. Yeah. yeah. Even even Superman has had Superboy, and yes. you know Jimmy Olsen has become Superman at some point. Right? Everybody's been Superman at <laughs> yeah, some point or other. Yeah, yeah. you know, uh, but Batman has. I mean, I know they've tried in the comics, right? But it's pretty much just been Bruce Wayne, right? Yeah, I mean, the most you get is like he he is killed, and so I mean he's shot with a time bullet, and you know because the comic books are stupid, and and Dick Grayson Nightwing is Batman for a short period of time and stuff like that. Yeah. But it's it's Bruce Wayne, right? Yeah, is Batman. And this was not like I know there have been Batman Beyond comics since this, but this was original, right? Yes, this was this was created entirely for the TV show, like Harley Quinn. It's a yeah. creation of this team, and that's also just one that's like. It's crazy. It's something that, like, no one does with comic book adaptations anymore is just make up their own shit. But Paul Dini and Bruce Timm and this whole team did that pretty regularly. Yeah. So, and yeah. And it ran for three seasons, 52 episodes. Um, so, I mean, it was very successful um, for, for a cartoon at the time. And then, as you said, smack dab in the middle of that in 2000, um, they released this made-for-TV movie, Batman Beyond Return of the Joker. Um and one thing that's sort of interesting about this that I think you kind of have to talk about, especially for me, because I like, so I loved Batman Beyond when it was coming out. Like this, because that was coming out when it aired, started airing when I was seven. So it was like old enough that I like distinctly remember this being one of the first TV shows where I'm like, I need to watch this. Like, yeah. I need to watch this. Like, this is a new thing that's coming out. Like, I need to, like, you know, have someone tell me, like, when is this happening? Like, Thursday something or other? Or, like, Saturday night on Cartoon Network? I want to watch this. Like, it's like that, SpongeBob SquarePants. There's a couple shows like that that I remember being the, like, introduction to my youthful mind of, like, the concept of there's a TV show that does not currently exist 
that is going to exist in the near future, and I should start watching it then because it's going to be fucking cool. And uh, for the kids listening, you had to do it at a certain time. Yes. Uh, you couldn't just stream it. No, you weren't Netflixing and chilling on the couch or whatever. You had to be like, okay, I have to get up at like Saturday morning at 7 or something to watch this on Cartoon Network. Or set up your VHS recorder <laughs> to schedule yeah. when it will record for you. That is the thing that ages us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. this is the olden days. Um, <laughs> and so... I then, when this aired on TV, because it aired on Cartoon Network, um, it uh, when it was airing on TV in 2000, it was censored because, I mean, you've now seen the movie, you understand yes. why yes. it was censored. Because it is, I mean, although the censoring of the movie does not really meaningfully affect the content, that's <laughs> like most sort of shocking, but it's a very dark movie. Um, very, very dark. In particular, the flashback sequence um, that deals with what happened to the Joker. Um, in like the Batman animated series timeline and sort of wraps up that sort of whole or I guess in the history of the show um, and so this was shortly after the Columbine school shootings happened Columbine is April yeah. 2000 this was supposed to come out in October 2000 so yeah. I mean this is right up against that yeah and so a lot of children's entertainment got hit pretty hard by that in terms of like censors coming in and saying hey like specifically anything involving guns and so like the Joker's death scene in the flashback is completely re-edited um, or this is completely reanimated. reanimated. Yeah. Like, they just redid it so he's not being shot um, by the bang pistol or whatever. And lots of, like, the, a lot of the fight scenes are edited down um, and stuff like that. The major stuff that's changed is really a couple lines of dialogue and that flashback sequence. There are pretty significant elements of it that are either cut or heavily reanimated in order to make There's, different scenes. Yeah, I mean, but it's enough that it's a 76-minute movie uncut yeah. and it's 73 minutes edited, so... It's, it's not like there's no full scenes cut out because I watched a full like 11 minute video last night mm. methodically going through every cut. It's just there's so many like individual shots, head butts, anything like that. You do realize how violent a lot of the fight scenes are when you watch the side by side and you're like, yeah, that, that is a pretty violent move they cut out there. But um, yeah, it, it got trimmed quite a bit. And for a while that was the only version out there, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it was 2002 or 2003. 2002, a DVD release came out with the uncut version and now that's the only version you can see like you right. buy the blu-ray and stuff it's just because it's just the original version right um and it's you know it's a much better version like i think there's something kind of funny about the notion of them editing it and like censoring it and you're like but this is i remember watching this movie when it aired on cartoon network and that whole flashback sequence being fucking traumatizing because yeah the joker <laughs> doesn't get shot but he does get electrocuted to death and you hear his blood-curdling scream because it's an important plot point that the Joker fucking died 30 yes. or 40 years ago. So it's still violent um, and fucked up. It is one of the crazy things, like, from this era, you know, I remember Yu-Gi-Oh! and Pokemon and all the anime, Dragon Ball, all the anime that had to get censored. And the big thing was, for whatever reason, you couldn't mention death. You couldn't yeah. say the word death. You couldn't say the word die. You had to cut out instances of death. And so, like, you look at all the editing in, you know, Yu-Gi-Oh!, that's why we get the Shadow Realm. Uh -huh. um, I guess Pokemon doesn't have a lot of death, but they cut down a lot of stuff. Um, Dragon Ball obviously had to do all the, like, Home for Infinite Losers stuff. I mean, uh -huh. it was so ridiculous. But, like, this movie... If you watch the clips, like, the, the back and forth of, like, here's the uncut, here's the edited, they have to, like, they can't ever say anyone's dead, they can't say anyone died, they can't say anyone was killed, they have to do things like, he iced the Joker, yeah. or, like, you know, we, we laid him to rest, not like we buried him, it's, like, all this stuff that's, like, very, it, again, as you say, it doesn't change the plot, because you can't, the Joker has to be dead for this movie to work, but, like... 
it's so funny, like the overbearing editing of like early two thousands kids programming. It's I assume it's still like that, I guess, but just kid, you don't watch kids stuff on TV anymore. It goes to streaming. Yeah, and and you know this. I mean, you know, it, I think it's impressive that they decided to go for what this movie is yes. and like think they would be able to get it on TV because I mean it is by far of the DC animated stuff. This is like the most uncomfortably like kind of brutal. And mostly in a psychological sense with everything that happens with Robin in the past. Um, yeah. But, like, this is a, like, pretty intense, violent, kind of, like, psychologically intense movie with the subject matter it's dealing with. Um, and it's fantastic. But I am impressed that they thought that they could get this past anybody. Um, and I'm amazed that this movie ever came out in any way. Um, like, that it yeah. got greenlit and all that kind of stuff. Um, it is important to note, like, this movie is made by the Batman Beyond team, which by extension is the animated series team. The screenplay, um, I think very critically, is by Paul Dini, who's one of the main writers. He's the creator of Harley Quinn. Um, he also was, like, the writer on Arkham Asylum. Um, and, and if you want Batman Joker dialogue, because Paul Dini did most of the big Joker episodes in the animated series, if you want the Joker to come back... You want Paul Dini to write it. Mark Hamill returns to voice the Joker. Um, and so it is It is that team. It's Kurt Gaeta, who did a bunch of uh, directing work on Batman Beyond, directs it. Um, and then also the music that I want to mention really quick is Christopher Carter, who came on, I think, with the new Batman Adventures uh, for the Batman animated series. Um, and then he did the music for Batman Beyond. He won, I think, an Emmy for the music for the TV show because it's really good. Um, but it's that whole team making this TV show or this uh, TV movie. And uh, I've always loved this movie. I think it's like just a really critical piece of the Batman animated universe like experience. But Jonathan, this was your first time watching it. What do you think? With a couple of caveats. Yeah. It's a great movie. Mm -hmm. And those caveats are relatively minor to me. It's the, I like the animation, but it is far from cinematic. Like it is, it, sure, it, yeah. it's a TV production. It looks like it. This is not Mask of the Phantasm where you go, oh my God, they made a movie. It's and that's fine. That's and it's it's a little held back by the digital nature of some of the animation. Where like on the modern Blu-ray, there's just like a lot of like jagged edges mm -hmm. and and things that like if you watch like Batman the animated series on Blu-ray, just looks gorgeous because they just did it from film and it's perfect. Yeah. Uh, but that is not really the movie's fault. That's just how things in the year two thousand look now <laughs> yeah. because of how digital productions happened. Um, you know the mu the the music. I go a little hot and cold on it. Is very dated to the early 2000s. I do like it and have some affection for it because I lived then too. Yes. Um, and I think we, and I do think like when the movie settles in for scenes, there's some really good music in it. Yeah, I, um, I think there's something I find very fun about the blend of the big yeah. gothic choir stuff that they pull from stylistically from the animated series. And then you just have a blues guitarist like fucking yes. shredding over it. I, I think that's fucking rad. It's good. No, I like it. It's it's um it's something that you have to you just know that that's in there going in yeah. if you're gonna watch it. Um, so you know I have little quibbles there. I think in terms of like the quality of the movie, I think maybe the ending is a little too neat in some ways for all the stuff that happens with it. But these are my tiny tiny little uh -huh. caveats. Overall, this is better than most of the Batman movies we've watched so oh, yeah. far. It's better than most of the Batman movies we will watch. Uh -huh. It's it's very very good. It, it is. It's just prime back. Like it's just like this team. There, there's a moment near the end of the movie. I said this on Twitter last night when I watched it, where old Batman Bruce Wayne says something to young Batman Terry McGinnis. I'll say the exact line later when we're full into spoiler territory, but just about like the nature of being Batman. And it's such a simple line of dialogue. Mm -hmm. It's like with great power comes great responsibility. It's a very like simple statement. But I just sat back and went, 
why can't these guys write all the Batman stuff? Uh-huh. Like, they just get it in a way that no one else really gets Batman, I feel like. It's, at least in, like, visual mass media. Yeah. In a, like, post-Adam um, West world. And it's just... it's Adam West world. That's a, that's a world I would visit. That sounds like that's from the next season <laughs> of West world. Adam West world. Adam West world, yeah. Anyway, this is a very loopy podcast uh-huh. so far. But, um, no, it's great. It makes me want to watch more Batman Beyond, but I also think it works entirely on its own. Um... I, this is this is the good shit, Sean. What can we say? Yeah, it's this the good is, shit. Yeah. This is like the straight from the tap, like great Batman. Yeah, because I think it's been it's been a good chunk of time since the last time I'd watched this movie. It's probably been like eight to ten years. Like it's been a while. Um, and in fact, I think the last time I watched it would have been around the time the last time I watched Batman Begins and Dark Knight. Around the time uh, Dark Knight Rises came out. Um, and so it's been a while because that's also when I rewatched through the animated series of Batman Beyond and just like I did like a big run or just watched all of those mm-hmm. in like sequential order, uh, which is a great time if you have a good chunk of time to watch a lot of cartoons. That's a fucking good time to spend it. Um, but yeah, I, it, it just has always left a big impression on me as this movie specifically feeling like it encapsulates what I love about Batman Beyond because the movie itself is about in many ways that dynamic of Terry is not Bruce Wayne yes. and I think you know that's a major theme throughout the whole TV show but that's kind of the, but it's never like what an episode of the TV show is about and that kind of feels like what they decided to do with the movie was say let's take this thing that's like a recurring element and theme in like drama um, that runs through the concept of what Batman Beyond is let's make a movie and make that the heart of what the movie is about because it is about how not only is Terry McGinnis a different Batman but in many ways he is a better Batman than what Bruce could be because partly because he's building on the foundation of what Bruce Wayne established and also because he's not held back by the same hangups that Bruce was never able to get over in his life and his run as Batman and Terry McGinnis is able to go further and be kind of a better person um, than what Bruce Wayne could have been. Yeah. Um, and that's what the movie kind of is about and having the Joker be this specter from Batman's past in this very good, you know, keeping some of that those noirish elements alive. It's definitely not as much of a noir as Max of the Phantasm but the Joker's sort of like this specter from his history coming back and Batman having to deal with it is a very good Batman type plot that ties perfectly into that concept of how does Terry match up against Batman's greatest foe and like what does it say about who Terry is as a, as a person and as a Batman exactly because I think so one thing that's interesting about this movie is it has a lot of big twists obviously uh-huh and for somehow, Sean, I have remained unspoiled on this movie. Yep. I knew nothing going into it last night mm-hmm. when I watched it. And I was very surprised very frequently because this movie goes places. Yeah. But one of the surprises was not plot related. It was that I think in the back of my mind, I just kind of expected it's a movie called Batman Beyond Return of the Joker. You've got the Joker's face on the poster really big. Yeah. I know Kevin Conroy's in it. I know Mark Hamill's in it. I kind of expected that Terry would be maybe off to the side. Because in this kind of, that would be the easy way to do this, right? Uh-huh. That Terry would be kind of the sidekick and he'd be helping Batman vanquish his one-time foe. That's not it at all. No, That's not yeah. the movie. The movie is Terry's movie. And the point of bringing Mark Hamill back is, is not to say, what light does the Joker shine on Batman as an old man? It's what light does 
Batman's greatest foe shine on the new Batman who has taken up the mantle. Mm-hmm. And that's the choice they make and that's the story they tell. Not to say that, that Kevin Conroy's Batman isn't a big part of this movie. Bruce Wayne is a big part of this movie. But it, it never feels like it's losing the Terry of it all. And that is what makes it so compelling. Because as you say, it, it that's what it is about. I think the, the final act, what makes it so good, is seeing Mark Hamill's Joker go against this new Batman and he doesn't actually really know how to fight him. Yeah. And when when Terry realizes that, that's what allows him to frankly deal with the Joker more easily and efficiently and morally than Batman ever did. Yeah. And it is a great story because of that. And I think, you know, when when we reviewed Mask of the Phantasm and you said, "Hey, we need to do Return of the Joker," Now I see why you said that. Like, this is the thing that kind of brings the Mark Hamill Joker performance in that original run, pre, like, Arkham and all of that stuff, full circle, you know? Because you bring it back around, and this is, like, one final confrontation, but Batman could never defeat him, but Batman Beyond can. Here's how. And there you go. And it is a great story, and it does feel like, now that I've seen this movie, I just... Even though there's a lot of the DCAU animated universe that I still want to go see... um, there's like some sense of closure for me. Yes. Of like, okay, the book kind of is finished here, and that's awesome. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why I, when I realized that you probably hadn't seen it, one of the reasons why I mentioned it is because I thought it would give you that. Yeah. Because, because that's what it gives me too. Yeah, it gives this closure on that whole chapter of Batman because it's just such a great capper on specifically what the Batman animated series did with these characters and this sort of like style and flavor of Batman. Yes. So, talking about the movie, I think what makes the story so ridiculously compelling and, like, truly edge of your seat. Like, last night I'm watching this movie, and I'm on the edge of my seat the whole time because they establish very early on that the Joker is definitely alive. Uh Uh-huh. It's Mark Hamill. It's the voice. Batman runs his fucking voice analysis check. I don't know how that works, but he does it. You know, it's the Joker. We can tell. But he's also really dead. And they Uh show us that he is fucking dead. And it's like, how are they going to square this circle? And it is a genuinely good mystery. As you say, it's not... It does not, like, prescribe to, like, the tenets of film noir, as we talked about with Mask of the Phantasm, which is just straight up a film noir genre film. This doesn't do that exactly. It's got way too much cyberpunk in it for Uh that. But it is a mystery movie. Yes. And it is... And Batman's always at his best. You've got to have a mystery to solve, right? And um, that's what we have here. And it is just... Because it really does kind of keep you guessing until the end, and when it's even when it's fully revealed, it's so big <laughs> a yeah. thing that's going on. You're never feeling like let down by any of it, um, and it is it is one of those sort of mystery driven stories that, and I feel like this is increasingly rare in our in our modern IP driven age, mm-hmm. where you don't know what's going to happen next. And I feel like on repeat viewing, it would still be exciting just to see, like, how, how do they go from twist yes. to twist, you know? Yeah, and it's, it's you know, being an animated movie, it's 76 minutes, so it's also just so tight. Yes. Right? There's no, there's no fluff on this movie at all. It, it, every single sequence and scene is super necessary, and all the pieces of the mystery are put together so naturally, right? So you get introduced to the Tim Drake stuff really subtly and really naturally where he comes into Barbara Gordon's office near the beginning of the movie once the Joker comes back and then later you get a scene where Terry meets him and you find out he's Tim Drake and like the way it is it's incredibly intricate how Paul Dini wrote the screenplay and how all those little pieces of the mystery come together to slot in these kind of two parallel stories that you think are separate the story of Tim Drake and the story of the Joker and then at the end of the movie it reveals that no these are not separate stories that it's actually been one plot thread the entire time you just have been looking at two different ends of it 
Yes, exactly. Um, I know, like, one of the moments was we have the Joker back, and then you see on the TV an old man watching yes. it. And I was like, who is that? Uh-huh. And I wanted to know. And then he goes into Barbara Gordon's office, I'm like, what is going on here? And there is one of the best red herrings I've ever seen in a movie is the CEO of, of Wayne Enterprises, yeah. who is, like, trying to fuck over Bruce Wayne, is voiced by Mark Hamill. And it's Mark Hamill doing enough of a non-Mark Hamill voice that you go, is that Mark Hamill? Uh-huh. And he looks a little like the Joker, so it makes you think maybe that's the Joker. But it's not. It's just a red herring. Yeah, and it's good because they also don't lean into it hard, no. which is why it's an effective red herring. Because yeah. I think it's the kind of thing that, like, another movie would do that. Like, it's a fairly common way to, to construct a red herring like that. But they would, like, focus on it really hard and have some other scene where he cackles or something in a more Joker-esque way to try to really to try to convince the audience that he's a Joker. But instead, he's in the background enough that like it makes you feel kind of clever to start picking up on oh maybe he actually is the Joker because yeah. he's sort of a background character but he does sound sound like Mark Hamill huh and he does hate Batman okay it's one thing you can you can say of all of Batman animated Superman animated all of this stuff is they respected the audience's intelligence yes you are they are never thinking they're smarter than you uh-huh. and and they want you to come along for the ride and whether that's in the 20 minute chunks of the TV show or these movies it's a really common thing in this stuff and i think it's and i think it's what's made people love these shows for decades now is as a kid they felt like respected as a viewer uh-huh. and as an adult they're like there's layers of this i never got before uh-huh. and that's that's the magic formula right there absolutely so, yeah yeah um so you know we we start with so we have the joker's gang who are there from the pilot of batman beyond uh-huh. and are just kind of how would you describe them? <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, it's just a bunch of sort of cyberpunk teens that yeah. all have, like, modeled off of different Batman villains. You it's, have um, the main guy who's, like, looks like the Scarecrow, who he's uh, voiced by uh, Michael Rosenbaum, who yes. you might know as Lex Luthor from Smallville. He's also the Flash in Justice League. Um, and he's doing a very light Christopher Walken impression, which I love as an acting choice so much. Um, but yeah, it's like him and like a bunch of different bozos. Of Your Harley like, Quinn t- tweens or twins? Yeah, the twins are, are like twins. Harley Quinn. Um, you have the the like hyena Gene Splice dude who's there. Um, you have I think his name is Roxo or something like that, who's like the big bruiser type dude who gets yeah. iced by the Joker uh, early in the movie. Yep. Yeah. And we start with a with the big action sequence with them as like our sort of cold open. And, you know, I said earlier that the animation is is a little more limited, and I want to clarify that. So it definitely does not look, like, cinematic in the way Mask of the Phantasm does. Yeah. It's, you know, simple lines, fairly simple backgrounds, solid colors. It, it looks cheaper in that sense. Where the animation really excels in this movie, and more than, I think, probably the TV stuff, too, is the motion is really impressive. Yes. So all the action sequences in this movie in particular, and it's, like, true of the TV show. So this is a style they went with for Superman the Animated Series, or to like simplify it, and I think it works better overall for Superman than Batman stylistically. Um, but it allows for a much more fluid motion design, and this is like where Western cartoons trended mm-hmm. um, in the late '90s through to the 2000s through to now. Is Western cartoons are much more focused on relatively simple designs, very fluid lines that then allow you to animate the character with a lot of frames, even on the TV budget. Um, and you get that in these action scenes. You see the benefits of that approach um, because they are fluid and gorgeous and so well choreographed and put together um, that it is, yeah, it is definitely not as, like, you know, mind-blowing as watching a big action sequence in Kimetsu no Yaiba where you get all that um, fluidity coupled with, like, really high-detail images. Right. Um, but you get the fluidity that really sells that action. 
Yeah, it's kind of the same logic I feel like uh, Clone Wars works on in CGI. Yes. You know, Um, where like they don't like, you know, Obi-Wan's beard in Clone Wars is just a solid thing. They they don't animate the individual hairs, but that allows them to have Obi-Wan moving around like a fucking Jedi. Yeah, exactly. And and you buy it and it's great. So yeah, it's it's very fluid in that sense. And the action is just like, honestly, one of the things that impressed me so much was when I went back and watched the video comparing the censored cut to the uncut version. And you see all the little moves they cut out for violence. But it shows you just how well choreographed and mm-hmm. edited it is because those action sequences become relatively incoherent in the edited version yeah. because it's so precisely choreographed and everything. And it's just all of the individual frames are so good. And I feel like this is probably a step up from the TV series because they had at least a little yes. more time. It's a movie. Um, because there's a lot of them in this movie. There's this opening scene with the Jokers. There's several confrontations over the course of the movie. I think this... Because I, I agree, like, this kind of thing doesn't, I feel like, benefit the, like, season three new Batman adventures all that much. But for Batman Beyond, like, with the suit he has and the powers, this is so great. I love yeah. having a more acrobatic Batman. It's yes. very cool. It, like, really differentiates him from Bruce Wayne. Because I feel like Bruce Wayne Batman is defined by, like, weight mm-hmm. and, like, heaviness. Um, and good Batman action sequences lean into that side of it. And this is all, you know, uh, Terry McInnes is much more light on his feet. And that, that costume is much more lithe. Yes, yeah, and it just, it's, uh, one of the things that's really fun about this movie is it is very propulsive, like, it's kind of an action mystery movie, like, yes. it's compared to, certainly compared to Master of the Phantasm, that has its action scenes here and there, but it's not an action-focused movie, yeah, Batman Beyond has lots of, like, really big, really great action scenes in it, you know, and this opening sequence is one of, like, the best, like, it's, I mean, it fucking goes places because you start fighting in the lab and you have all the fighting there and then it's like this big chase sequence where they're on like the floating cars going through as they're trying to steal this big like gizmo or whatever and he's fighting them. Um, It has, uh, I've always really loved the scene where Terry's getting like choked by the big guy and then he's like gargling out like, and it's like, what? Sign! And then the dude gets hit by the road sign as it goes by. Um, yes. Very good shit. It's very good yeah, it's stuff. Just very, it's just such well memorable, like, it's well choreographed action sequences that are choreographed around big key moments that are memorable because they're like driven a lot by character, specifically for Terry being this more kind of jokey, acrobatic kind of character. And stylistically, there's some really cool stuff. So there's this one thing they do that I think is fascinating where there's these two scenes in a club. Yes. Where Terry goes with his girlfriend I forget her name uh, Dana Dana he goes with Dana and there's one scene that is just kind of pure setup that is them at the club dancing and Terry is really tired and then there's another one where they're there and the Joker's breaking and they have a big fight because Joker has ordered the Jokers to go kill Terry yeah um, and in both those scenes they don't have the budget to have like a million people on the dance floor and make it feel really crowded uh, or, or, or to do like really good dance moves even uh-huh. what they do have is they can cycle the colors and what they do is they give this sense of like strobe lighting by just having the characters bathed in like single colors that keep alternating and it's striking the first time you see it but when then when they do an entire choreographed action uh-huh. sequence around that that's the best action scene in the movie that's one of the best things I've seen in like the DC animated stuff yeah. is that action scene. It feels very like Gendy Tartakovsky, the kind of thing he would do. Yes, I think it, because I don't know when the, because there's an episode in Samurai Jack season one that I maybe would have been before this or have been around the same time, but there is an episode in Samurai Jack where Samurai Jack is at like a big grave um, that does a similar thing. 
of having like yeah the alternating colors and different so like the background is one color and the different characters are alternating on different colors so like everybody's very like stands out really well um and it's a similar effect like slightly different than what that samurai jack episode does but yes it's a similar kind of style they're going for it's so Um, good that for a while I, i like i was noticing it but like not consciously thinking about it and then it kicked in and i'm like i see what they're doing this is so because that must be fairly simple, but it's so creative. Yes, as a means of like making this feel more expansive than they can actually do, but also because of those limitations, I think it's more striking than it otherwise would be. Mm-hmm. If they had the, the the money to do a bunch of like very detailed dancers on the dance floor and more like realistic colored lighting, I don't think it would be as interesting. Yeah, having yeah. that like very plain, harsh, yes. jumping colors. Yeah, it's it's that that is a Fucking fantastic gnarly. scene. Yeah, I mean it's just and again like. This movie gets like cyberpunk aesthetics in a way that I think a lot of stuff that goes for cyberpunk, including the game cyberpunk, doesn't get. Uh, yeah. It's very good at it. Yeah, and, and it has a very unique style unto itself by blending, because, because it's like gothic cyberpunk, because yes. it's keeping that, it's one of the things I like about the movie, it's like, it's all or the music, it's always keeping that kind of gothic undertone that's so yeah. essential to Batman, um, while then also expanding that out into this like crazy cyberpunk future world. Yeah, absolutely. And over all those action sequences, you do get Christopher Carter's just... It's, you know, you get in the groove with it. It's good. You just get some really... There's just some really... And it might be why I like the music is that, you know, I I play the guitar and there's just some, like, really sick fucking blues guitar solos that just... Because I forget who the... um, There is, like, a fairly well-known blues guitarist. I forget what his name is and I don't think it's on the Wikipedia page. But there's a like, a good blues guitarist who, like, has worked with, like, a bunch of great bands who did um, a lot of the guitar work specifically on this movie. Uh, And it kind of feels like what they had him do was let's just play this track we made and then just fucking shred over it, bro. And he does. And it fucking (laughs) rules. It's so good it's very good all right um you want to talk about like some of the characters here and and how the plot fits together yeah I, I mean i feel like we just need to talk about the flashback scene okay it's like okay. the thing i want like it's like it's hard to talk about anything with this movie without talking about the flashback sequence because it is like the to me it is like the mind-blowing set piece of this film it, it is so i mean just to set the stage i yeah. mean again you have this mystery the whole time that the joker has come back it's very like mark hamill makes him sound older but it is the joker yes and and he looks a little older but it's him he kills that fucking guy with yeah. a very clear setup he shoots him with the gun that goes bang He's like, okay, you didn't shoot me. And then he pulls it again and it's this arrow that comes out and pierces yeah. the guy in the chest so we have that setup but Batman is insistent, and Commissioner Gordon, who's Barbara Gordon, yeah. is insistent. Terry, the Joker, is fucking dead. And the way they keep saying it is with this like haunted look in their eyes, yes. like he's dead, and it was rough. And all the time I'm thinking, like, oh my god, what is we're gonna get a flashback. What is it? Because I part of it is me knowing like the setup for Batman Beyond was Batman picking up a gun and he's like, I can't be Batman anymore. Yeah. So does it tie into that? Did Batman kill the Joker? Because that is obviously the big question of all Batman media. Yeah. Like, how are they... What exactly is going to happen? Um, and then it flashes back, and it's Batman, Tim Drake, Robin, and Barbara Gordon, Batgirl. Yeah, which is the main cast of the Bat- the new Batman Adventures. So it, it yeah. is just animated in that style. Yep. And what's one of the things that's great about it is it's like, it's like... It feels like you just get this, like... 
episode of the new Batman Adventures that was cut from broadcast because it was too like haunting and too intense. It's like the finale that was like way too fucking dark. Yeah, and then, so it never aired. Like because it is just exactly in that style, and yes. they bring back the same actor who played Tim Drake. They bring back the actor who played like young Barbara Gordon mm-hmm. as Batgirl. Um, and it's just entirely that. Yeah, it's it's so impressive, and then it goes. So ludicrously dark, yeah. Sean. Oh my uh-huh. god. I mean, this is a thing that, like, before you even. Okay, I don't even know. How do we want to break this down? So, yeah, let's just describe, let's describe the, what the plot of what the sequence is. So, Tim Drake, Batman, and Batgirl, they're all out, and then Tim Drake um, disappears effectively. He is kidnapped off the street um, by you, heavily implied to be Harley Quinn that does it. And then, and this is all Barbara Gordon in the present time of Batman Beyond narrating this. Um, and so Batman and Batgirl are out there, like, hitting the streets, you know, going into, like, dive bars and punching people in the face to try to figure out what happened to Robin. Um, and then they get an invitation from the Joker to go to Arkham Asylum. And at this point, Arkham Asylum is shut down. It's this abandoned building. And Batman and Batgirl go to investigate Arkham. They discover Harley Quinn and the Joker there. And the Joker reveals what has happened to Tim Drake, which is Tim Drake is basically tied, like, you know, tied down to this thing, and he comes out, and he is Jokerified, and it's little like ten-year-old Tim Drake. He looks like a little kid, um, and he's dressed up in the Joker suit, and he's got like little purple Joker shorts, and he's you know, b- white, green hair, smiling, laughing. Um, Batman, enraged by this, obviously starts fighting Joker. Uh, Batgirl starts fighting Harley Quinn, and then Batman follows Joker into an abandoned theater where Joker has uh, a home movie that he shows Batman. That shows what happened, the experiments he he performed on Tim Drake. A lot of that home movie is some of the stuff that got edited in the TV version originally, um, of just you know medical experiments. They like shocked him. They injected him with different um, like you see like bloody tools on. I mean, it is dark. Yes, like he jokers him. Uh, Like it's not he doesn't just get gassed with the Joker gas. Like he performs experiments on Tim Drake's body to turn him to like psychologically break him down and turn him into a Joker boy. And this is all wrapped in Joker and Harley Quinn talking about being mommy and daddy. Yes. It's very psychoanalytic. I mean, yeah, they come in with, um, when they enter the Arkham Asylum, Harley is like singing a lullaby. Yes. Um, which is really fucked up. It's, I mean, the filmmaking in this sequence is unfucking real yeah. It is that same level of like Mask of the Phantasm or the fucking TAS theme song where you're just like, every shot choice, every cut is so ludicrous good and it's like the entry as Harley Quinn is singing the lullaby all of the little action beats here Harley Quinn's apparent death when Batgirl like is fighting her and she falls down the, the pit yep. all of this stuff um, and yeah and then you get yeah and then you get um, Batman's sort of fight with the Joker this is also where the Joker um, stabs Batman in the knee which is kind of implied to be why he Bruce Wayne walks with a limp in a cane yeah. in present day. It's violent. That is yes. like the most violent thing I've seen in a cartoon like this. When he, yeah. I went like Jesus when I was watching it because it's just a full like knife go in and you can feel the fucking muscle being broken by this yes. knife. It is harsh. It's something that was definitely edited out of the <laughs> yeah. edited version. Yeah, um, they like they they basically cut around the knife almost entirely. But you can there's like one frame of the knife in Joker's hand and then they just cut the whole cutting into the chest and stabbing yeah. in the knee. You just like sort of implies that Batman gets shoved down. Um, so Batman is taken out basically by the Joker. The Joker hands Joker affied Tim Drake the bang gun that you have the setup from at the beginning of the Batman Beyond movie. Um, and then Tim Drake's pointing the gun at Batman. He pulls the trigger once. 
to bring the bang flag out um, all the while he's just like chuckling crazy Joker laugh and then Tim Drake pulls the trigger again but instead of shooting Batman he shoots Joker in the chest Joker goes flying backwards um, and then you get and this is all this is changed to the TV version and it's criminal because you get the perfect last line from Joker where he goes that's not funny that's not ugh. and then he collapses and dies um, which is the best last yes the best way to light write the Joker's death um, it's such a good line you can tell um, that Paul Dini had that in his must have had that in his head forever that that has to be his last words um, and then Tim Drake starts Joker cackling that turns into a cry as he falls to his knees Batman goes Batgirl comes and they like shelter him together and then you get modern day Barbara Gordon having this line is like we buried Joker deep under Arkham Asylum the only other person who ever knew was my father and he took that secret with him to his grave yeah. um, and and then it's like cut back to modern day it's like and that's why we haven't told you about this Terry because it's fucking fucked up okay Jesus I kind of couldn't believe what I was seeing because to context I have not had this movie spoiled for me but this movie carries a reputation yes I knew it had to be edited and then uncut and like that's usually something you hear about with anime not American cartoons uh-huh. it's like it, it, I heard it was really dark but like and when they started I'm like oh is this kind of like a riff on the Jason Todd thing nope no. <laughs> way darker than that way, way worse like it would have been merciful if Tim Drake was just beaten with a fucking crowbar yeah no it is I mean, because it's also... I, I think we can't stress enough. It is little kid Tim Drake. Yes. Who you have a relationship with from the TV show. Yeah. Like, that's what's extra brutal about uh-huh. it is it's that version. It's, it's fucking little kid. He comes out with the, the fucking Jokerified. It is so brutal. The All of, like, the stabbings and just the death noises that the characters uh-huh. make... And, uh, and the sense of Batman having, like, fallen as far as it's possible for him to fall. Because Joker comes after his family and yeah. succeeds pretty wildly. Um, and it is just, it's an amazing thing. And it is, like, the centerpiece of this movie um, for a reason. <laughs> yeah, and, and as you said, it, it's just, like, just the filmmaking of it yeah. is phenomenal. There's, there's a shot in particular of um, Batman, is, he's in the abandoned theater and the, the projector goes on with this like very creepy black and white um, movie that has no sound. Uh, you just hear the sound of the projector and you see some images of Joker like pulling out tools and like the shocking claws and that stuff. And then you just get this shot um, of like the projector in the left third of the frame shooting towards the camera and Joker framed in a window in the projection booth and he's like leaning back with his back against one edge of the wind, the projection booth window as he's looking like off to the side with his hands um, basically like steepled narrating to Batman what's happening that is like I think one of like the best frame shots in all of this stuff and like all of Batman dumb it is just it's so chilling and like perfectly composed and it it embodies this like much darker version of the Mark Hamill Joker that he never really played much in the TV show but like but this is very much like I think part of the mood he goes to in the Arkham games where that's a much more intense version of the character um he has a lot more of that here where they let him kind of go a lot darker and more intense like there's something extremely threatening about his performance as the Joker in this movie both in the flashback and in the modern day stuff there's I forget if it's in the flashback or in the modern day stuff where he he like just flushes I know all this stuff, but I, I, he doesn't say fuck. He's like, I fucking hated you, Batman. It's yeah. basically like the the, uh-huh. the the brunt of it, and like that's something I think this movie does in in both sides of it is pulling the mask back, and it's like 
yes, there was this like playful back and forth with the Joker and Batman and all this stuff, but they don't go for like the the Joker fucking loves Batman kind of thing. Yeah. They go for ultimately like, I fucking hate you, Batman. And yeah. like, and it is so like some of the dialogue Paul Dini writes for him and the way Mark Hamill delivers it, it sends chills down your spine. How like this is, and I think they do a really good job of like this is like the end points both in the in the flashback stuff and the present day. Of like these respective stories, like this is further than we ever saw in the animated series, and this is the present of Batman Beyond. Of this is a Joker who has just kind of gone fully off the deep end, and he's not fucking around, and it's like I am going for Batman's heart, and this is it. You know, yeah. he's out for blood, and there's something about that that is so deeply disturbing, and absolutely like an obvious influence on the Arkham games, mm-hmm. um, yeah. very much so. Yeah, and that's also in that sequence is where you he gets the to reveal that he's found out Batman's secret identity from torturing yes. Tim Drake, right? And so you get that great line where he talks about like I've learned secrets, secrets that only I know, Bruce. Um, and then he has his whole speech about you know how pathetic Batman is. It's like oh, I can't believe the entire time you're just this scared little boy, just like crying for mommy and daddy. Um, and yeah, there's that his ability to just sort of totally get under Batman's skin he just tears him down he yeah. just completely he has that line also that I love there about like he's I've learned your secrets Bruce yeah. and he's like and it's like a little kid who found the presents before Christmas morning mm-hmm. and it's disappointing yeah <laughs> and that's the transition into everything you're saying it's so yeah. good and that's also where you get you know Batman as Batman breaks into the projection booth this is another like incredible sequence where the projector falls over and so you get Batman like just brutalizing Joker in strobes um, with the strobe effect of the projector pushing against them. Um, and that's where you feel like, oh, this is not Batman punching Joker to, like, stop him. He's He is... You get the sense that if Batman was able to, he would have killed the Joker in the yes. sequence. Um, yeah. It is not because Batman was morally opposed to it. It's because he was not physically capable of killing the Joker because the Joker sort of, like, outplays him. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, it's he he breaks Batman kind of in every way it's possible other than, like, doing the Bane thing and breaking him over his uh-huh. knee. Yeah. So, by the end of that, it's all fucked up. You go into... I like the, all the details that Barbara gives us that they were able to rehabilitate Tim Drake, or so they thought. Yeah. Uh, and now he, like, goes and he works out with, like, telecom stuff, which, when she first says it, you go, oh, okay, normal job for a normal, like, adult, and you don't realize that's going to be vital to the plot because yeah. that's how good the writing is in this movie, uh-huh. damn it. Yes, no, every, every, there's not a wasted line. Every line no. is used somehow or some way. Um, yeah, it's, it's because, just incredibly tight. Because we're not done with this being fucked up. Yeah. Because then the ultimate revelation that Terry, Terry pieces this together, and this is where I feel like you start transitioning into, once you get out of the flashback, you start transitioning past this being Bruce Wayne's Batman story and it really being Terry taking the reins because Batman, or Bruce, and, and Barbara are kind of blinded to this. Like, Terry immediately has a sense that, like, well, what do we think, you know, uh, Tim Drake is up to? And they're like, it couldn't be him, it couldn't be him. Yeah. And he pieces it together, he solves the mystery, he figures out where the Joker is. He doesn't fully anticipate how dark it's going to be uh-huh. because the ultimate revelation of the movie is that Tim Drake and the Joker are one and the same. They are sharing a body. The Joker did some DNA splicing, blah, blah, blah. You accept it because of the future of Batman Beyond. Yeah, and in like it is particularly with Batman Beyond, like if you've been watching the TV show, gene splicing is like a major feature of the show, and it's like what a lot of the villains come from. I mean, that's yeah. like Hyena Boy, um, that's a part of the game, right. it comes from that same technology. With- so it's like, it. I think it's easy to buy with the setting yes. of Batman Beyond. That's like, okay, this is like a precursor 
because it's because it's specifically it's like something he has to have the chip on the back of his head which is like this more analog like low-tech version of he's not you know just completely jokerified you can yeah. still stop it by destroying the dna chip or whatever but the the sum of all of that is tim drake thinks he's just tim drake normal communications manager dude but he is also the joker who can take over his body at will and has set up a giant fucking space laser Yep, and starts blowing shit up. You first get it on the yacht scene, which is insane. I have not seen a space laser in Batman before. Uh-huh. That's pretty good. Yeah. And then uh, the the climax happens with the space laser coming at them as they're fighting in the fucking old factory, um, and the final confrontation. But yeah, I mean, I think at a certain point, I did suspect like, I okay, they must be going with Tim Drake as Joker. But the way they do it, I mean, it's still so brutal. And, like, yeah. Joker just rubs your face in it when he comes out again and is saying, like, at any time I need to convince the wifey. And he, like, does the phone up to his ear and then just breaks out the Tim Drake voice. Yeah. Uh, who is voiced by uh, Dean Stockwell. Yes. And it is, it is, it is brutal, Sean. Yeah, because sort of what I think the movie, the, the second red herring of the movie setting up, because in that mix they also, like, confirm that the original red herring is not him. It's not the, the Jordan Price character. Right. Um, he's just a patsy being used by the Joker like everyone else. Um, but then the next red herring is, okay, it's Tim Drake is being manipulated in some way to work with the Joker, or he's being, you know, the, the Joker somehow has returned. But not that he, and because he and Tim Drake have like completely different physical bodies, right? right? Like Joker is tall and lean. Um, Tim Drake is like very kind of stocky and a little bit chubby. Um, And, but so you get this like full Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde sequence instead where it is revealed, yes, that um, it's smart that they do this off screen and you just see the reaction of Bruce because Bruce can see everything through Terry's eyes at the Batcave. So you get Bruce's reaction and Terry's reaction to seeing uh, uh, Tim Drake's body like contort into Joker but you don't actually see that because it would have been too fucked up to see like bones snapping and shit like that but you get this sense of it is a truly horrifying Mr. Hyde-esque transformation and that it is that is how the Joker has survived is by hijacking Tim Drake's body I mean on top of everything else this movie gives us to do as you say the full Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde kind of thing is an extra level of craziness yes. And then you have sort of the final confrontation here. And this is a scene that I wound up when the movie ended. I rewound and just watched this whole scene again because I think the writing is so fucking good. Yeah, I rewatch the climax of this movie every couple of years just on YouTube clips because it is just like, it's just a perfect sequence of Batman stuff. Yes. It's just so good. Because it's there is action here. They're fighting, they're going, they're trading blows. But it really is about this you know war of words and the joker is talking down um bruce over the intercom kind of thing and he's making fun of terry and then bruce has this line where he says the joker just loves to talk let him wear himself out and terry goes i love to talk and terry figures it out and he turns it back on the joker and tears down the joker and i think the respective performances of will friedel and mark hamill and the just utter precision of the writing in that scene combined with some incredibly good animation and filmmaking it is a dynamite fucking scene yeah. that really, when we talk about like the closure moments, it feels like a climax to all of the Joker story you've ever seen. Yeah. In this one moment where someone wearing the cowl figures it out and overcomes Joker and makes him the small, pathetic fucking thing he is that Bruce Wayne Batman never could because Bruce Wayne is also kind of small and pathetic. Yes, exactly. That It's like, it's here's what happens when like a normal human being actually has yes. to encounter the Joker is like, yeah, it, it highlights 
the that Joker is also driven by these weird, strange obsessions that, like, Batman kind of enables in his own... Or, like, traditional Batman sort of enables in his own weird way. Um, yeah, like, that whole sequence is incredible. It, particularly, I love the way it starts with... Um, you know, Terry sort of destroys the thing with the laser or whatever, or like causes it to be stuck on this track to go back to where the signal's coming from, destroy the signal. And Joker realizes, oh, well, shit, I guess the game's up then. I'm not going to be able to do my satellite laser plan. I'll go have to come up with something else. Thanks a lot, kid. And Joker just starts to leave. Um, and, and he's just so uninterested in yep. playing a, the game with Terry. And that's where Terry has to like step in and say, like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, we're going to finish this, buddy. Um, but Batman would have let him get away. Yeah. Bruce Wayne Batman did that all the fucking time. Exactly. Yeah. Like, this is something we'll get to with Under the Red Hood that I'm very excited about. Because the thing Under the Red Hood, the movie does, that I think is so fucking brilliant, is it really puts the Batman doesn't kill Joker bullshit under the microscope yeah. and shows it as a fucking failing yeah. of Batman. And, like, a utter hypocrisy that is his moral rot. Yeah. And I feel like this movie is somewhat in... I know these movies were made at different times, but it's in conversation with that idea. Yeah. And like Terry being like, no, I'm calling you on your bullshit and I'm finishing this. And yeah. he does. And yeah, and he goes and like runs over to the big door or whatever and Joker's like, aha, yeah, you're running away. That's more your speed, kid. And then it's no, Terry shuts the thing. He fucking gets a bar. He's like, we are fucking... You're staying here and we are finishing this. Like nobody is leaving this room until I kick your ass. Yes. It's so good. I think the specific way Terry finally defeats him, where he has, the Joker has him on the ground, is choking Terry out. Again, no wasted line here. It's a direct callback to what the, the guy is doing in the first scene of the movie, yeah. before the flagpole scene that you mentioned. Uh -huh. And Terry uh, gets the, the buzzer, the Joker's fucking joy buzzer, which has been like the Mark Hamill thing, I think, in uh -huh. all of his appearances, and puts it on the back of the head with the chip, and... Effectively kills the Joker through that and frees him of yeah. Tim's body. And again, the, the Paul Dini dialogue is so good yep. because in that it's the Joker is so infuriated because Terry has just been mocking him by this like, come on, where's your A material, man? Like fanny packs and shock buzzers, like come on, like let's tell. I thought you Joker. were a comedian. Yeah, um, it's so good his dialogue because it's so like legitimately mean spirited as in this way of like. As someone who, you know, has spent a lot of time working with teenagers, like, when teenagers <laughs> are mean and mocking, like, it's, there's this, like, cruelty to his mockery that, like, is really well played and well written. Um, and he drives the Joker into a fury. Joker's choking uh, Terry on the ground and screaming, is like, laugh at this, you little punk, laugh at this. And then Terry, like, gets out this choked, ha ha, and then shocks him. Um, and it's just the writing, the dialogue, it's so electric. Um, and it's particularly really fun to have Will Friedel be able to play opposite Mark Hamill also. Um, because, it's, yeah, it, it brings out a slightly different side of the Terry character, being able to play with yes. the Mark Hamill Joker and how good that performance is. And, you know, it's not quite fair to say Terry kills Joker. It's a little different than that, you know? And obviously, yeah. like, there is nothing morally wrong with getting rid of the guy from Tim Drake's body. Yes. Now that we can all agree on that, right? Uh -huh. Killing in general, bad. This is fine. And yet, I don't think Batman would have done that. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think, and I think this is the thing, again, when we get to Under the Red Hood, like, the, the key thesis of that movie and that story, I think, when it's been done, they do it again in Arkham Knight, the game, is that one of the reasons why Jason Todd Robin becomes so infuriated with Batman is he sees that his life wasn't worth more to Bruce than Bruce's pain, which is exemplified through the Joker, who he will not kill, yeah. even if it means saving someone who should mean more to him. 
And I feel like that's the thing here is Terry doesn't have that pain, so he just cuts through it yeah. and gets rid of it. Yeah. And I think Batman is too like attached to that. Maybe old Bruce Wayne, if he was fit enough to do it, would do it. But Batman in his prime wouldn't have done this. And yeah. and that's I think a a it's a way this movie is in conversation with all this other Batman media and is so brilliant about it. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's just an absolute electric finale that yeah brings home the themes that have been established in the background of, you know, earlier in the movie, Terry gets frustrated by Bruce's... Bruce is so reluctant to allow Terry to fight the Joker when the Joker first shows up. Um, And that's where you get that scene where Terry explains to Bruce, like, the reason why I'm Batman is not, like, in order to get revenge. It's not in order to enact, like, some grand plan. It's not to, like, end criminality in the world or whatever the fuck Batman you were trying to do. Like, I'm trying to atone for these mistakes that I felt I've made in the past in order to make me feel like a more worthwhile human being and to help people. That's why I'm doing this, and you can't take that away from me. Um, and you can take your fucking suit like I don't need it yeah. um, and and it's a really sort of definitive statement that this movie makes about Terry's character is that he isn't someone who's motivated by his pain and his trauma he is primarily motivated by his desire to do good yes. um, and that's what separates him from Batman who like Batman does want to help people and he does want to do good and he does do it but there's always a part of him that has this pain and this trauma that he can't grow past. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, again, I think when you talk about that sense of closure, that's where you get that from. It is like, because yeah. I, I do think that's something I like about Batman Beyond in general is that it's able to acknowledge all of Batman's failings, which to me is really important for Batman stories. I yeah. don't like, if you're going to take yourself seriously as a Batman story, for me, you really have to acknowledge how imperfect this whole fucking idea is. Yeah. And it's able to do that while also letting Bruce grow as a character. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. he's a different person in this than he was in the show we watched. Yeah. And he's someone who has grown and through his relationship with um, with Terry is also able to grow more. Um, and it's why there's this moment at the end of the movie, like I was saying, and I'm trying to look up the exact line if I can find it, but it's at the end in the hospital where um, Terry comes in and, and Bruce comes out. And um, yeah, here's what he says. He says, Terry, I've been thinking about something you once told me, and you were wrong. It's not Batman that makes you worthwhile. It's the other way around. Never tell yourself anything different. That's a really simple line. Yeah. That is not like a super complicated piece of writing. Like, it's the person in the suit that matters. And yet, I feel like the precision of the moment at which it's delivered, the arc that we've been on with these characters... The way we just know that Bruce Wayne has never thought about that before. Bruce uh-huh. Wayne did not define himself as Bruce Wayne. He defined himself as Batman. Yeah. And he says this to Terry. And it's you see that he is both acknowledging Terry's growth, but also telling him something he, in his old age, has learned. And that's the line I was saying earlier where I just sat back and went, I wish these guys wrote everything uh-huh. Batman-related. Because that is just... That gets it to a degree that is so deeply perfect. It's kind of my favorite line in the movie, even though it's not, again, it's not as flashy as anything Mark Hamill has to say, but it just, in terms of thematic encapsulation, is so well done. Yeah, and it comes at a moment of where you get this very quiet kind of resolution to Bruce's story over this thing, because one of the main elements of the plot also is that after everything happened with Tim Drake, Bruce, in his Bruce Wayne way, like, never really visited Tim Drake again, right? He, yeah. because, as you're kind of saying, similar to this, the Red Hood thing, in any ways, Bruce's pain is more important to him than anything else because it's so what defines who he is as a person that, like, 
to visit Tim Drake and confront that guilt and that pain would then create an opportunity to kind of move past it in some way and he can't do that mm-hmm. um, or he couldn't do that in the past and Terry like shows him by example that's like you can be Batman and you can be like a good normal human being at the same time they're not mutually exclusive um, and and so at the end of the movie the last thing that Bruce Wayne does is he goes and visits Tim Drake in the hospital um, and then you get that and I love the way they handle that of where you don't get to see that scene Terry sees Bruce go in you get like the first line as as he says hi Tim and Tim says hello old man and the door shuts and that's it that's the end of the movie yeah it's so good it's yeah. a great movie Sean it's a great fucking movie it's yeah it's even better than I remembered it being I had such a good time watching it the other night because uh, yeah. it just it fucking Batman Beyond is great and this is the best thing in Batman Beyond it is like the pinnacle in many ways that like Master the Phantasm is to the animated series this is the pinnacle of what Batman Beyond is to me awesome it does make me excited to see more of the show yes. at some point and I want to I at some someday I would love to do the whole run of Batman TAS Superman New Batman Adventures Batman Beyond Justice League slash Unlimited yeah we've got all of those on Blu-ray except Superman that's the one they still they need to do and I'm worried yeah. that Warner Archive which we talked about earlier getting kind of shuttered yeah. is the thing that's holding that back but and also all of these are on HBO Max which is cool um, I, I think they've finally gotten all of that in one place which is nice um, but anyway um, one other thing I want to mention is uh, we get a little closure on Harley Quinn at the end here too. Yes, we're going to talk about. It. So throughout the whole movie, we have these those two sisters we talked about, um, Deidre and Delia, right? Yeah, they're just called Dee Dee. Dee yeah. yes. But it's Melissa Joan Hart does those voices, of course. Yeah, that's great. Um, and uh, and and so you have the, they're like the Harley Quinn people in the Joker's group. Yeah. And at the end, you have um, an old grandma come pick them up from jail, like she's paid their bail. And it is Arlene Sorkin doing yeah. the voice, and it is clearly Harley Quinn as an old grandma who has, I guess, reformed. Yes. Um, what do you think about, like, they, they didn't let Harley Quinn die. They let her have kind of a happy ending past the Joker. Does that feel right to you? It's great. It's like, yeah. it feels like, it's a very good, like, Looney Tunes-esque ending. Because that's, like, because that's basically the end of the movie. Um, yeah. And, and it's a very, like, you can imagine the, like, circle going in. Right? Like, it's a really good gag. She does look like the grandma in the Tweety Bird cartoon. Exactly. Yes. I feel like they very intentionally go for that. Yeah. And yes, I think there's something very fun about this little like kind of tease or whatever that Harley has survived. Um, yeah. You also get I we can't talk about Batman Beyond without talking about the other major main character in the series, which is Ace the Bat Hound. Oh my God! How did we forget? He's fucking awesome. Ace is so good. Um, for people who don't know, Ace the Bat Hound is historically a character from the Golden and Silver Age of comics, back when you know you had like Crypto the Superdog um, and that kind of stuff, where you had to have your weird superhero spinoffs, and eventually you get to the pet animal. Um, and so Ace the Bat Hound is like an old comic book character. And then they kind of brought him back in this fun way for Batman Beyond of where old crotchety Bruce Wayne, of course, has this big Great Dane dog he lives with. And it's the only thing he lives with, you know, in his giant manner. And it's named Ace. Um, and it's a pretty major part throughout all Batman Beyond. And it's kind of one of the ways they mark kind of like the continuity of the show is Terry's relationship with Ace getting better and like more friendly because Ace like attacks Terry the first time he meets him and stuff like that in the beginning of the show. Um, and here he's all over Return of the Joker and their relationship is so great. One of my favorite scenes in all of Batman Beyond is after Bruce is attacked by Joker in the Batcave. Um, 
uh, Terry comes upstairs and and uh, Ace is like on the couch watching a Looney Tune of like yes. the Hound going like I can't go on and crying. Um, and and uh, Terry just sits on the couch with this like How you doing, Killer? Yeah, me too. Um, it's a very good scene. It's Ace kicks ass. He is like the co-star of this movie. Uh-huh. He's all over it. There's a scene where um, Terry Batman gets in like the Batcopter. It's a very cool shot, all bathed in red, of course. And and Ace gets in with him and is just chilling in the back. That also that scene also has the funniest edit in the edited version where they added a seatbelt. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. They add the seatbelt to the super hyper advanced Batcopter. Yeah, but they didn't add one for Ace. I was no. hoping they would do one that like would like wrap Ace up or something, yeah. but no. Yeah, this like MS Paint, just yes. black line over the shoulders. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, Ace rocks though. Ace is a fantastic character. I really loved. Yeah, because I remember him viv- like a little bit from the uh, the pilot and stuff, but I don't think he had become super prominent yet in yeah. the show. So I was like, this is this fucking rocks. I love dogs anyway, but you give me a bat dog, I'm there for it. Yeah, I hope Robert sense. Pattinson has a bat dog in the new movie. You know, maybe if it's not in the first one, that can yeah. be the sequel, or at least your, your like Netflix spinoff is Ace the Bat Hound, <laughs> Adventures of Ace. Yes, absolutely. HBO Max is, is going to apparently do like a, a Cops of Gotham show instead, which... Seems like a bad idea right now. Why not do an Ace the Bat Hound show? <laughs> yes, exactly. Nobody can object to a dog or a show about a dog kicking ass. Nobody's saying abolish the dogs. No, do- nobody's saying defund canines. No, more canines. <laughs> All right. Um, so that's Batman Beyond: Return of the Joker. Sean, I want to end with the eternal question. Uh huh. I guess plagued many a mind. What the fuck is wrong with the people at Warner's that they have not done a Batman Beyond movie? In all their attempts to reboot Uh Batman, all the different things they've thrown at a wall, get Michael Keaton, get some young cool dude to play Terry. It could be anyone. I feel like Terry could be any race. You could have anything for Terry, right? Uh Uh-huh, yeah. And it's just, it writes itself. You could just use Return of the Joker and I feel like add like a first act that does a little originizing and it would work. Like, this is like the biggest layup. In the history of fucking IP management, and it's amazing to me they haven't done it. Yeah, I, it's it's so frustrating that Batman Beyond, like, I feel like Batman Beyond is waiting for its Miles Morales moment. Like, yes. it's this like such a beloved, awesome little segment of Batman mythos or whatever that's kind of off on its own island, and the people who know about it know that it's great and awesome. Um, but it's been kind of like mostly dead for a long time. Like again, every once in a while they'll do a little comic book spinoff thing or whatever, but none of those really capture the energy of what the show had because it's usually not the same people who made the show. Um, yeah, like I don't know. I you know my I always wished that Arkham or the Rocksteady had done like a Batman Beyond DLC or something at least, yeah. if not a full game for the Arkham games uh, because it's yeah Batman Beyond is awesome. It's a great fresh and it would still feel super fresh area of like Batman to explore that makes Bruce Wayne a way more interesting character because this is the best coolest most interesting version of Bruce Wayne there is it gets this cool new character with with Terry and all of his cool Batman like suit powers and stuff it like that it gives you endless aesthetic possibilities yes. you could do whatever you want within like a cyberpunk and the art deco stuff and the all that stuff is like so open to interpretation and imagination like and and I like my dream would be Michael Keaton because I fucking love Michael uh-huh. Keaton and old Michael Keaton is just 
perfect for this. Uh-huh. But also like uh, Ben Affleck as as his Batman, his like affect in those movies is so in line with this. Uh-huh. Like give him a couple years and he could do it. I mean, yeah. there's so many ways you could do this and have fun with it. Um, and so many people have been Batman and, and just fucking let George Clooney redeem himself as old sure, fucking yeah. Bruce Wayne. I'm sure when he is like 75, he could kill this. Uh-huh. But uh, that they won't do that because George Clooney definitely won't do that. Yeah. But like, it's just, it's amazing to me that like we've had so many Bruce Wayne reboots at this point and like they haven't done this and it would be so I'm not saying it would be easy but it would be so much easier than having to do the Bruce Wayne Batman again at this yeah. point you know just like it would be so fun um, and you know at least like with Sony the, now that they've fully embraced Miles Morales with like the cartoon movies and everything we don't need to worry about that anymore and it's like think about how much that's freshened up the Spider-Man side of the world exactly. Batman Beyond could do that I, I, I agree with you I wish Rocksteady's next game wasn't some fucking Suicide Squad thing I wish it was um, a Batman Beyond game because when I play the, with the Batman Beyond suit on in Arkham City that's a lot of fun that suit yeah. looks cool it's it's a rad suit. It's like one of the best like alternative costumes in the history of yes. superheroes. It's like this in the black suit for Spider Man, um, because it turns out if you just get a black suit with like a really big prominent version of the superhero logo on the front of it, it just looks really cool. It looks really cool. It's why the fucking uh, proto Daredevil suit in Daredevil season one is my favorite like thing in Marvel. Is exactly. just fucking put a black hood over his head and we're 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 good. Yeah. So that's Batman Beyond: Return of the Joker. Uh, thumbs up. Two thumbs up. It's one of the best movies we've watched. Like the only, I mean, it's up there with Batman Returns, the '66 movie, Match the Phantasm, as yeah. the really great Batman movies. Um, yeah, Batman the original Tim Burton one is okay. Batman Forever and Batman Robin are not. <laughs> People are following our rankings. <laughs> Our vague rankings. Well, next time, Sean, and this will be next week, actually, yes, because we are pre-recording this uh, in about five minutes uh-huh. <laughs> before Sean gets out of town. Uh, we will be talking about Batman Begins and diving into fully the modern era of Batman with Chris Nolan uh, and Christian Bale, and then um, we're also be doing Under the Hood at some point. So all in like the kind of the current present day Batman stuff. Um, I I'm very uh, excited to have this talk with you, Sean, because uh, we've both watched Batman Begins, and I will just say. I have a really different take on it than I've ever had before. Yeah, me too. 